0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 130. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show.
1: The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey
0: everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. So I'm not going to lie to you, this episode is long, but if you're really interested in MMT and uh, just basically monetary theory in general and the connection between money and debt and so forth, then I think this is going to be a good one for you. So let me first give the official bio of the guest before I forget, and then I'll circle back and explain to you why is he on the Bob Murphy show. So Rowan Gray is an assistant professor of law at Williamette University. He has a JD from Columbia Law School and an LLM from the London School of Economics. And right now he's Working on his JSD at Cornell Law School. Um, So what he's known for, though, if you if you're on Twitter, he's an expert on MMT. And I recently wrote a review of Stephanie Kelton's MMT book that she just came out with, and that's of course something that you folks know about since I read it for episode 128 of the Bob Murphy Show. That review, and then I posted it, and it caused some stir on Twitter. Uh, Two things I want to mention. One is there was a slight inaccuracy that I put in the review. Namely, I said that the U.S. Treasury has never spent money that it didn't first have, right? Like the equivalent of bouncing a check and having the bank cover it, in this case, the Federal Reserve. And since the early 80s, that's been for sure true. And it's like enshrined in law that the Treasury is not allowed to overdraw its account. Prior to that, though, there were some brief periods where they did have the legal ability to do it, and it looks like in a few cases they did do it, even though they had enough money in other accounts to cover it. So technically, one particular checking account, if you will, they overdrew a little bit, and the Fed covered it. But you could argue it'd be like with your bank account, like if you overdrew your save or sorry, your checking account, but you had enough in savings, and the bank just covered you. I, th- I think it, that's a decent analogy. But in any event, George Selgin you know, gave me a link to something he had written that that spelled all that stuff out. All right. And so then in the ensuing discussion, then this guy Rowan Gray jumped in and he was saying some things and it it just got to the point where he, he had made a few minor technical corrections to things. And so I thought, you know, why don't I bring this guy on? So he's just to warn you, he's total MMT and his worldview is a hundred and let's say 75 degrees different from mine, but I think it's it'll it'll shed light on and if you haven't thought through some of these issues deeply, it'll it'll be really illuminating. Okay. So again, the point is not that I think you're gonna end up being persuaded by him. I, I hope you're not, because he's pro MMT and I think MMT is very dangerous, but I think it, it's a useful discussion. Depending on the reaction from you folks, I, m- I might do like a follow-up episode the way I did with Warren Mosler, where we, you know, we had a friendly conversation and then people said, Okay, why don't you do a follow-up where you analyze stuff? I might do that with this one. Uh, depending on what the reaction is going to be. So one of the things, though, that Rowan corrected me on, which I didn't realize. So I had always thought that the modern in MMT, so it's modern monetary theory, since its proponents spend a lot of time saying, hey, we got to stop thinking of the government like a household or a corporation where they have to balance their budget and they got to get revenue before they spend it. No, no, no. Ever since leaving the gold standard, today's government's or at least you know the major ones, they issue fiat currency and they, they're unconstrained by that. It's just a matter of be careful about price inflation because that's how the conversation usually went. I had just assumed that the first M, modern, meant this is how monetary theory works now that we're off gold. And that's not what the term means, right? So it comes from this quote from Keynes in the treatise on money, which came out in 1930. Page four says, The state, therefore, comes in, first of all, as the authority of law, which enforces the payment of the thing which corresponds to the name or description in the contracts. But it comes in doubly when, in addition, it claims the right to determine and declare what thing corresponds to the name and to vary its declarations from time to time. When, that is to say, it claims the right to re-edit the dictionary. This right is claimed by all modern states and has been so claimed for some 4,000 years at least. Okay, so again, that's Keynes, talking about how the modern state acts like it has special powers with respect to money. And Keynes is saying this has been the case for some 4,000 years, okay? So modern monetary theory then, at least its advocates are telling me, what they mean by that is modern in the sense of the modern state, okay? So it's really a state theory of money, and it's not so much that the gold standard per se is the thing making it modern or not, all right? So that was something that I hadn't encountered, and so okay, why don't I have this guy on then? Let's just really understand exactly the nuts and bolts of MMT. And the other reason I have him on is because he, when he was trying to argue with us, it's not worth spelling out right now in this intro, but a particular thing that George Selgin and I were saying about why we thought Kelton's description was misleading. The way the MMT people were trying to explain it, I was I realized, okay, wow, they're coming at this thing from a completely different perspective. And Rowan linked me to a paper that he had written on this stuff. And it has just a whole fascinating history of fiscal and monetary policy and the regulations and so forth, governing them in the United States, going back to the founding. And so that's partly why I have him on. So in the beginning of this episode here, we don't talk about MMT. We're talking about just some stuff that you may not have realized about how like, the Congress used to handle bond issue and things like that back in the day. All right. So it's, I think you're going to learn a lot if you're willing to uh, absorb this stuff, and you, know, you break it up. You, know, you don't want to sit here and do it in two hours straight. So without further ado, here is my interview with Rowan Gray. Well, uh, Rowan, welcome to The Bob Murphy Show. Thanks for having me. So as I mentioned already to the folks in the introduction that I recorded for you, I wanted to first just uh, commend you on your paper. I, I learned a lot reading it. It um, just gives a good history of the United States, I guess, fiscal and monetary history. And so why don't we just take a moment or two to go over some of that stuff. And so let me just, I'll just prompt you. And then, you know, hopefully you remember, (laughs) because I've had people ask me about something I wrote 10 years ago and I have no idea what they're talking about. Um, This is burnt in my brain. Okay. All right. (laughs) Okay. So first, can you spend a little bit of time just explaining like the way we think of it now where the U S government, you know, has a consolidated budget and you know, the the spending programs. What was interesting is reading how you were saying originally like the the financing, not only did Congress issue the bonds or were responsible for it, but the the bond issuing was was tied to specific programs and there wasn't like a consolidated budget. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the way to think about that is you're a you're a fledging country, you know, in the 1788, or you, you know, you've just sort of won a revolution, and you're starting to build a new infrastructure for a federal government that didn't exist. And so, a lot of the things that we now take for granted as sort of institutions and practices of the federal government didn't really kind of exist at that point. Even even the Treasury Department itself had to be sort of brought into existence and define its its features and functions. So. Um, At the outset, you had a kind of Congress that was making a lot of decisions and then a relatively fragmented set of federal institutions that were carrying them out. And what that meant was if you're budgeting for a defense or war spending um, or you're budgeting for the post office, uh, those two things are definitely going to come through Congress's fiscal process, but they aren't necessarily going to come through the same administrative agency um, when it comes time to the budgeting. And it it could even be that they – have their own budgeting processes or something. So what that means is that Congress is really in charge of the purse strings, not only the amount to spend, the kind of appropriations and spending process, but also the financing decisions. And um, what you had at that time was uh, a series of decisions about how many bonds to issue of different maturities for different spending programs. Often the bonds would be linked by name to those programs so that, you know, from the perspective of the the investor, they weren't just holding a U.S. Treasury bond. They were holding a Panama Canal bond or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Treasury was very – If I could
0: of, stop you for a second. So yeah. that – for, you know, the typical American listeners – I guess nowadays the thing that like local governments, they might do something like that or or a city government or maybe even a state level, like where they're gonna have like a bridge or something. So they issue bonds tied to that specific thing. And especially like if the state has a a balanced budget amendment or something that will, that's kind of how it's all rolled into it. So it's like, oh yes, these bonds were issued on this bridge and the revenue from the bridge tolls will pay back the bondholder. Like, so it's kind of self-contained. So it's not an open-ended
1: yeah, a lot of them weren't necessarily self-contained in the obligations, and that's an interesting kind of legal point. I don't okay. go into that too much in the paper, but you know, if you had a Panama Canal bond and it defaulted, that doesn't mean you don't have a general claim against the government still. Okay, <laughs> you know, okay. it's it's mm-hmm. almost a fiction in that sense. Whereas some mm-hmm. of the securities that you're talking about might actually be um, only linked to the revenue okay. of that project. Okay. So if mm-hmm. the project fails, you don't get funded. Um, the other thing is that these instruments and and this sort of goes into where I get to later in the paper um this was as much a question of of sort of portfolio management uh, of the assets itself as it was the financing question so mm-hmm. that when they were making these decisions they were thinking about questions like how many long term bonds versus short term bonds do we want to issue you know do how much do we want to fund this through issuing securities versus through coinage or customs taxes and things and so it was a question as much of like, what instruments do we want to have out there? You could imagine a debate today where, like, do we want to finance – like, do we want to issue more 20-cent coins or 25-cent coins or, uh, or dimes? And that question is, like, a separate question to what we're funding. But mm-hmm. in, in in that early period of the, the Republic, the two were intimately connected. Every uh, financing debate was as much a debate about what instruments you wanted to have in circulation as it was about the funding.
0: And again, just to make sure people don't miss the big picture is when you say they would worry about the, you know, the, the maturity Curtis, of the bonds. yeah, Congress. it was Congress. Whereas, yeah. so yeah. now it, that's not what happens, the Congress. So I don't, I don't know. How do you want to, do you want to explain yeah, I mean, like, like some key, some it. watershed moments in the evolution to how we got to how it's run now?
1: Yeah. So the way that I tell this in the, in, in the, in the paper is that really the way to think about this is that. The rise of the kind of modern administrative state, which we often associate with FDR, but arguably goes back to Wilson and World War One. Mm-hmm. You know, the kind of building the machinery required to manage our like
0: war machine
1: at the federal level.
0: Yeah. Um, Just so uh, you know, Rowan, a lot of libertarians, like young libertarians, will say, "Oh, I hate FDR," and the older ones will say, "No, no, no you hate Wilson," and then they'll say, "Oh, okay."
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, sure. I mean, he's he's a racist piece of. Shit. <laughs> like, I, I don't particularly have much love for Wilson either. But certainly, the origins of what we could now see as the consolidated budget process began, I would say, with the uh, 1919 Second Liberty um, Bond Act. And what that basically was a recognition of was that uh, the federal government's administrative side, not Congress, but the, the not just Treasury, but also all these other agencies, uh, were dealing with so many difficult questions on the fly that the micromanaging from Congress was a, no longer a tenable option. You know, you mm-hmm. could imagine this as an example of kind of a small company or nonprofit that has a board that micromanages and then they expand up 5X and suddenly, you know, they need to delegate more to the CEO or the, mm-hmm. you know, chief operating officer. Or you could imagine, a, a, you know, a community that does everything by a direct democracy when they have a population of 5,000 and then they get to 5 million and suddenly they need to build new um, representative institutions or something. So you, you had this move to Congress basically saying, within limits, here's the range of ways that you can finance things, and you make the choice. Mm-hmm. So on, on the instrument side, there was more flexibility for Treasury to manage, in collaboration with the Fed, to manage what instruments they wanted to issue for the needs of financial markets and for the for the for managing their fiscal position. And then on the other side, you had this issue of sort of, well, what if we have funds left over from over here that we don't... And, but then when there's another program that needs more funding and things like that, rather than having an excess of funds here and then going with your handout to Congress, we're going to let you kind of have a general spending limit or a general financing limit, and then you can move things around. So it's it's almost like going from having six different credit cards for different parts of your life to like one consolidated credit card, or mm-hmm. like going from having, you know, food stamps and a voting voucher and something else to like a lump sum of cash or something. And, mm-hmm. and as a result of that, treasury sort of took on debt management what they call debt management what i sort of call kind of monetary instrument portfolio management uh took on that role as an administrative function and congress sort of said yeah you're right like it's better for us to step back and at the same time there was a tightening of the the appropriations power so what you saw in the 18th and 19th centuries a lot was a fight between congress and the president when the president would engage in new contracts, like the secretary of war would contract with a military contractor or the Mm -hmm. Panama Canal contract with a builder or something. And the president would incur contractual obligations that were not necessarily already pre-funded. And Congress Mm -hmm. would then have to back them up because the president had basically put the United States's Promise on these documents, and Congress was in a really awkward position where they didn't want to threaten the full faith and credit of the United States, but sort of their operating officer had gone rogue and was Mm. incurring all these obligations. Um, So there was a big push over the 19th century to restrict the power of the president to spend more than he was uh, allowed by Congress. They really tightened the purse strings on the upper bound. Mm-hmm. And then in the in the twentieth century, you saw the other side of the coin, so to speak, which is um, up until the twentieth century, presidents had rarely ever not spent what they were told to spend by Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of times they did it. Um, Jefferson did it once. Uh, I think Andrew Jackson did it once. Well, you know, Ulysses Grant did it once, I think. And usually it was situations where uh, a war, for example, had ended, but there was still money to like go to war. And they were like, well, we don't need to spend this anymore. Or mm. to build a bridge and the bridge was completed ahead of schedule or something like that. It was very, relatively uncontroversial or it was about war and the president was the commander in chief and he had that sort of discretion. In the 20th century, you saw people start to spend not spend on things they just didn't want to spend. And that came to a head with Nixon in 74, where Nixon tried to not spend money that had been appropriated by Congress for highways and for community reinvestment in black communities. And he said, well, I don't have the funds. Um, and besides, it's my prerogative as president to choose whether we can do this as the, the executive officer. And Congress threw the book at him and said, no, when we tell you to spend, you have to spend. They passed mm-hmm. what they call the Anti-Empowerment Control Act. So at the same time as you have this expansion of discretion for the tre- Treasury and the president on what instruments to issue, you have a restriction of discretion on how much to spend and how much not to spend and under what conditions. And mm-hmm. that's the tension that I try to really bring out in the, in the paper, is that we often conflate the two. We right. think that restrictions on issuing certain instruments is tantamount to restriction on spending, whereas what the, those two histories show is that, in fact, Congress was extremely jealous and possessive of its spending powers, even as it was increasingly delegating its financing operational process mm-hmm. uh, to the executive branch.
0: So okay, great. And so this is probably a good time to pivot and talk about the debt ceiling because you know most people remember, oh yeah, every few years there's a crisis and they. So w- does that go back to was that World War One where that started the debt ceiling? Uh, so so there, there there were effectively ceilings
1: on every issuance prior to mm. that, um, and you could almost think of it like a thousand debt ceilings. And one of the arguments that I make in the paper is um, that we often think of the debt ceiling as this unique. Um, law within within the federal government. but in fact, there's a restriction on the amount of u s. treasury notes that the treasury can issue of three hundred million. This is a leftover from the Civil War, the greenback era. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a debt ceiling that's a that's a that's a greenback ceiling. Um, there are restrictions on the kinds of coins you can issue with one notable exception, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, and and those are not quantitative restrictions. The the mint is not told that it can only issue a million pennies or a billion pennies or something. It can issue as many pennies as it wants, but it has to be one cent. It can issue as many quarters as it wants, but it has to be 25 cents. So in that situation, you don't have a ceiling, but you have like a qualitative set of restrictions. So Mm -hmm. rather than seeing the debt ceiling as as a unique thing in, in American history, it's an example of a cap on a certain kind of instrument. In a in a in a sort of landscape of different kinds of caps and restrictions on different kinds of instruments. Now it's a very prominent one, and it had a lot of effects. Um, and, and it largely came in the 1930s when the consolidation of all these other spending authorities really kind of consolidated. The Liberty um, Bond Act in 1919 was the start of that consolidation process, but it really kind of reached a like a sort of 1.0 version um, okay. in, so, in the 1930s.
0: Right. So you so whatever you know. I, I'm just
1: saying. You're right. Yeah, you're getting, that was the time when you
0: started to think of
1: like a single cap. Until then, there were various caps. There was a sort of general fund. Right, this was the time right. okay. when the, the the treasury spending authority was consolidated under one um under one debt ceiling. Cap. Let, let me and just then, yeah, yeah say
0: that. So the, I mean the way like people go and read, like, you know, if it's like in Vox or something and it says, What, you know, what's the deal with the debt ceiling? And, you know, debt ex- that ceiling explain. I think they would typically say something like, Ah, yes, originally Congress was in charge of the bonds, you know, for pro dedicate. And then in World War One, though, they realized that was going to become just unmanageable because they were spending and borrowing so much money that, you know, things changed. So, yeah. so they gave the treasury the ability, you can go ahead and issue bonds, but to contain that they they said though that yeah there's a cap like the treasury can only issue debt of so much well,
1: the, tre- the Treasury was already authorized to issue bonds what they mm-hmm. did
0: was turn that from a series of special
1: purpose authorizations into a general authorization okay. so you can okay. think of it as like consolidating different authorities into one general okay. authority so that it's like greater than the sum of its parts
0: I got you and and but but that's that's where the modern notion of a cap on the total outstanding amount of treasury debt held by the public,
1: yeah, funds, and one of the yeah. things that I and two two like little points on that one is mm. that of course when this all came about, the U.S. was still on a gold standard, so that there was a functional difference between government debt and government money, mm-hmm. in in the in the in the sense of putting pressure on gold reserves. If you're holding a thirty-year treasury bond, you know it's still wealth, but it's not something that can be immediately convertible into gold, whereas if you're holding cash, it is, which Mm -hmm. means if you're the the US government and you're managing your gold reserves, then it it matters to you what proportion of your liabilities are out there in cash or in debt. Now, today, Mm -hmm. that's gone. But when a lot of these were created, this was an instrument that was very important precisely because it was one of the instruments that didn't put immediate pressure on the gold reserve in the way that issuing cash would have. Um, The other point is that Um, We often think of the debt ceiling today as a limit. We think of it as a restrictive thing. But Mm -hmm. the the, the point that I try to get out with this paper was that it was actually designed to be more empowering to the Treasury than Mm -hmm. what came before it. So that the shift from a series of of individualized spending authorizations to a general spending limit was actually an expansion of the discretionary uh, Mm -hmm. operational capacity of the Treasury. Um, So we, we think of it as a limit now, but it was designed actually to be to be empowering.
0: Well, it's, it's sort of like people nowadays think of the U.S. Constitution as these shackles placed on the federal government, but relative to the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution arguably in many respects you know, gave the federal government more power. So that's an interesting perspe- uh, yeah, yeah, perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- certainly I'd say that the founders knew that the the Con- Articles of Confederation failed because they weren't muscular enough and that there needed to be more muscular powers granted to the federal government if it was going to succeed.
0: yeah. Okay, so so as far as this, just to connect it to the modern, you know, disputes over, I don't know if this is your personal view, but let me say, you know, the the kind of person who normally, when the debt ceiling crisis rolls along every few years or whatever, they get mad and they and they say this is silly. Congress has already, you know, this, in other words, this has nothing to do with fiscal responsibility. Congress has already authorized and told the government, the you know, the executive branch, you should spend this amount of money. And if they're not going to raise the debt ceiling, that's just not letting the government, you know, given how much tax revenue is coming in, how much Congress is telling them to spend. There's the difference. There's how much the government has to borrow and add to the debt. And if the Congress isn't going to raise the debt ceiling so it's illegal, that that's ludicrous. So it's not being responsible. So the, the analogy I heard was it was saying it's not like you're deciding with your spouse whether to go out to the restaurant. It's like, oh, gee, we can't afford it. It's that you went to the restaurant, you ordered the meal, and then when the bill comes, you go to pay with your credit card and your spouse says, oh, no, no, remember we said we weren't going to run up our credit cards this month? Like, that's not the point to be objecting. I, I'm not necessarily yeah. endorsing it, but how do you feel about that sort of trying to get the people to see why the debt ceiling is kind of goofy?
1: Yeah, I think it's like it's true on one level and very wrong on another level. And okay. the, the part that's true is the part that I I don't have anything to add. And the part that's where it's wrong is the part that this paper is trying to correct. So okay. I think like it's true in the sense that the the fiscal commitment to spend is the relevant Part I think from a, from a legal point of view, from an economic point of view, and there are people who think that the U.S. should default on its debts or should be able to kind of go back on that, and and I just disagree with them on that. But if that's where the disagreement is, that's a sort of substantive difference about how the U.S. should manage its finances. But but my view is once the spending has been appropriated and committed, um, the the financing question is is very very far lower on that list. Where I think it's wrong is I think it plays right into the very problem that they're trying to solve. I think, and this is a sort of characteristic problem that I see of a lot of kind of people who consider themselves, you know, fiscally progressive or whatever, who, you know, aren't MNT people like me or whatever, um, is that they want to win an argument, but they want to win it with tools that have been proven to be losing tools. Um, mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that the the idea that you have to, any any money that hasn't been appropriated, uh, hasn't been Uh, budgeted with offset with taxes, must be borrowed, gives the mentality that the choices available are taxing, borrowing, or just defaulting on that obligation. But that story ignores money itself. In that story, there is Mm -hmm. no money. There's only credit. There's only debt. Now, you you can make the case, and MMT has made the case, that all money is debt. All government money is debt. But that's not how people are thinking of it in this context. They're thinking of debt as something different to money. And so what they're doing in this story is coming up with a narrative where the one most obvious function that the federal government actually does is not included in their framework, which is issuing the money itself. Now, Mm -hmm. if there is always an option to finance the deficit or finance the spending commitments with another instrument, then the idea that the debt ceiling is a limit on being able to pay doesn't make any sense. Like, Imagine you go to the restaurant, in your example, and you, you and your wife have agreed not to use your credit card, but you've got a, like $1,000 of cash in your pocket. Mm-hmm. Now, that, then it's irrelevant what's going on with your credit card, right? Maybe you and your wife need to have that conversation when you get home, but mm-hmm. the, the restaurant owner doesn't need to worry that you're not going to pay your bill. You don't need right. to worry that you're going to get arrested for not paying your bill. Um, the only debate that you're having is which instrument you want to use. Um, mm. and, and so if you look at the debt ceiling as a restriction on any kind of financing, then it will sound like you've created a paradox for yourself. If you look at it as a restriction on one kind of instrument, but not a restriction on completing those spending, then there isn't a paradox. And I would argue the debt ceiling actually makes a lot more sense in its historical and operational context. You can look at the debt ceiling. You can look at that $300 million cap on notes. You can look at all the qualitative caps on coins. And you can say, oh, there's a logic here. There's a coherence here. These all work together. These all make sense as part of a broader um, administrative financing process. But if you're if you're looking at it from the government has to spend or tax or borrow, and they can't tax, and they have to spend, and and... Then borrowing is the only thing, but if they can't borrow, then they're screwed. Then that story leads you to a seeming paradox. And you can say it's a stupid paradox and we should get rid of the debt ceiling. And the debt ceiling has been functionally suspended um, since about 2015 at the moment. Um, Every Mm -hmm. couple of years, it gets reauthorized, uh, it gets Mm resuspended, and there's a little political debate about it. Um, Mm -hmm. It still does the the rhetorical damage (laughs) to the public, but um, it it is stupid. And we can definitely do better ways of setting up the, the relationship between. Issuing bonds and and financing fiscal spending. And we propose central bank securities and things like that as a way to simplify that arrangement. But the the basic point is that um, those people are making an argument that is already kind of lost the war to Mm -hmm. win the battle. They're already starting from such a bad framework that anybody who's opposed to this is going to be very happy to have the debate on those terms. Okay, and I think I think it's unconstructive, and it's why we're in this shitty morass that we're in right now is because mm-hmm. we haven't diagnosed the problem correctly.
0: Okay, let me you sort of poked fun at I guess fiscally conservative progressives or orthodox uh, progressives on fiscal issue. Let me make fun of the conservative budget hawks on the debt ceiling stuff. What I my point has always been that what's crazy is there's Republicans in Congress. Who will complain about the wild spending administration and, and they're like big they'll be for like a balanced budget amendment and that'll be one of their pet issues but they'll go ahead and raise the debt ceiling and so my yeah. point is that if they're saying they don't want the government to borrow more money or say if they just refuse to raise the debt ceiling going forward they would have to have a balanced budget and so to me that well, proves so- that they're not again because they're not MMTers. So yeah, I'm saying I mean, I within make, the framework they're saying. The
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't.
0: Maybe this is a substantive point of disagreement. I would say that it's
1: the point at which they, for example, authorize the military budget that they're they're demonstrating their hypocrisy. And like, I, I agree with you that as a sort of practical matter, that blowing up the budget process through stalling debts in the negotiations has had the functional effect of forcing certain kinds of spending to be cut in sequesters Mm. and things. Now, so in that sense, like if your goal is to just stick a spanner in the spending system, then you can use the debt ceiling as a political football to do that. I would say that that, that most people that are doing that don't have a problem with the defense budget that they just authorized. You know right. what I mean? They, right. the, the point at which they're committing the spending, if it's spending that they like, they're happy to commit that spending. Now, you know, you and I can disagree whether tax mm. cuts constitute spending or, you know, giving money back to people who should have been never taken away from the first place. But if you have a problem with deficits and you're, expo- you know, voting to increase the military, voting to cut taxes and things, you're showing that you're you're committed to deficit reduction only to the extent mm. that it doesn't require you to do any other policies you don't right. like. And I would argue that like that, that congressional appropriations fight, that's where the ideology of the actual spending battle happens. And if you look at the debt ceiling stuff, yeah, people can use it as a sort of political logjam. But at, a, at an operational level, I could sign uh, a, a no more debt pledge tomorrow and still be consistent as an MMT because I just say fund the whole thing by minting a coin. Right, right. Um And, and like, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the way to go. Like, I think if you're a country that doesn't have a developed securities market, there might not be much public purpose in creating one. But if you're the United States, maybe you do want a securities market or to perpetuate the current one until you think of a better system, but that we don't need to do that by borrowing from the treasury. The, the central right. bank could issue those securities specifically as an investment asset, specifically for financial market purposes. Mm-hmm. And that could have absolutely nothing to do with the fiscal process. And that yeah. would make the kind of MMT point that that bonds are not a funding tool. They are an interest rate management tool. They're an investment tool, et cetera. And that, you know, from, from the Treasury's point of view, fine. You tell me I can't issue nickels, I'll issue quarters. You know, as long as they can issue some instrument to finance their spending – the debt ceiling is a red herring.
0: Okay, let, so I totally get where you're going. To, so we will, let me try one more thing and then we'll flip to the um, MMT stuff per se. But on this oh. point, so I don't want the listeners to misunderstand me. I wasn't necessarily endorsing what I was calling like the Vox way oh, to no, explain it. Oh, no, no, I, did, I didn't mean to put that in no, your no, mouth. No, no, I, I know you weren't of, either. Yeah. No, 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 I know you weren't either. I'm just saying to the listener. So let me give my take on why that's, why like, comparing or analogizing the federal government to the couple going to dinner, because I think most people could see, yeah, that would be kind of goofy if you go and you spend the money already, or you get the wheels in motion. So this bill is going to be coming due. And then you quibble over, oh, wait, we don't want to go deeper into debt. Like that does seem goofy. But it's if, the, if it's more realistic, it's a, wait a minute, you're part of this broader group. And then you periodically vote on spending and tax policy and whatever then maybe it does make sense because it's not just a consolidated decision-maker. It's you know dispersed among. So just like there could be a logic of a, in other words, somebody could say, what's the point of a balanced budget amendment? If you want balanced budgets, Congress has the power to just control spending and taxing. Just go ahead and yeah. implement it. And so you could yeah. see, but likewise, well, what's the point of having you know the First Amendment if Congress doesn't want to infringe on Freedom of religion. Just don't pass a law respecting blah blah blah. You see what I mean? That um, yeah. No,
1: look. If you had a constitutional balanced budget amendment, Mm -hmm. then that would impose restrictions on what Congress does. That would then have uh, you know an effect on what Congress could you know authorize or appropriate. So that that's true, and and that's why a a constitutional amendment is a radical change to the system we have right Mm -hmm. now. Because what you'd be proposing would be. A, a very different fiscal system mm-hmm. where congress oh,
0: doesn't have that plan okay effort. you know so sorry i probably shouldn't have said constitution because there there's the issue of like a previous congress and, and executive in the states binding the yeah, future yeah. whereas I, the original debt that ceiling as as in world war one like that thing that element yeah that, presu- that was a
1: creature of congress right so that right, doesn't so presumably congress, right right so treasure. i'm saying
0: there like why would they do that well when they say well because and I would think partly the reason they said okay we're going to give the treasury some more discretion in issuing debt, but there's going to be at any given time an absolute cap on the outstanding amount of treasury debt held by the public. I would think they did that just because they wanted to try to stop any shenanigans where the treasury was going to end up spending money they didn't authorize in issuing bonds to do it.
1: Yes, yeah. So I, I think that's part of it is that mm.
0: th-
1: that you know you can authorized spending at congressional at the congressional level. But there's still discretion at the administrative mm. level about how much to interpret and things like that. And so if you have a, th- a system where, you know, there are a bunch of kind of leaky holes or discretionary parts of mm. the budget, and then you have an open-ended spending commitment on the other side of that, then, then that does put a lot more uh, discretion in the hands of the Treasury. Now, uh, the two things I'd say about that is, one, uh, you know, in 1919, you were still at the very beginning of the administrative state. Today, a huge amount of administrative agencies have a very large amount of budget discretion. And a lot of that stuff is just not even recorded in the the consolidated general Mm. account funding. So like the Department of Education with its student loans, a lot of that stuff is happening basically off book. A lot of the GSA stuff GSE stuff with mortgages is happening basically off book, even though mm-hmm. it's federal spending. Um, you know, entities like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the Tennessee Valley Authority, you know, the Fed itself are all engaging with a degree of sort of fiscal discretion. Um, it's just a lot of it is kept off book right now. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that the idea that that Congress could have really imposed a a sort of hard cap on the amount of discretionary spending that the executive could do simply by messing with the debt ceiling. It it wasn't like it's not a coherent uh, regulatory approach in the modern administrative state. The other thing is that when they set it up, it was relatively uncontroversial to extend the debt ceiling almost every time for a very mm-hmm. long time. The first kind of fights you start to see about the politicization of the debt ceiling really come about in the 1950s. Kenneth Garbade at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York has a great paper on, on those de- um, on those debates and the, the creative tools that Treasury worked out to keep funding going in those moments. And usually at that point, those fights were resolved relatively quickly without causing a liquidity crisis or anything at, at Treasury. Usually it was a sort of show thing to protest some prior spending commitment mm-hmm. that was resolved when Congress passed another law to, to change that spending commitment. Um, but in a, in a sort of um, traditional example of uh, Campbell's law, or they call it Goodhart's law in economics, you know, the, once you have a, a metric that you're evaluating Uh, as as a sort of indicator of larger trends, Um, and you start focusing on that metric, that metric becomes an inaccurate measure of those larger trends. It's sort of Mm
0: -hmm.
1: kind of like quantum entanglement, the act of observing something changes it kind of thing. Um, So uh, once the debt ceiling existed and started becoming a kind of proxy for this general spending authority, it started to become more and more politicized as a football and become a kind of proxy for these larger debates. Um, Mm -hmm. And what I trace out in the paper is that it was a very bad proxy because you actually can't stop the government, you know, from spending on a regular basis, because it causes massive disruption. And so it was sort of like trying to negotiate with your boss, but the only tool you have in your negotiating arsenal is to like walk into the negotiating room, and put a gun to your head. You know, at a certain point, you can't do that every time you want to like have a raise or like go to the bathroom. Like you can't keep only threatening to shoot yourself in the head. Um, people are going to realize at a certain point you might actually want to stay alive, and that that's not. Mm a very coherent threat. Um, so you, you, when it was first established, it wasn't intended to, you know, create hard limits on spending that would stop the government every, you know, six months. That that right. only evolved later as a, a sort of unintended consequence of focusing on this one metric as a representative metric.
0: Okay, great. So why don't we switch to the, uh, the trillion dollar coin thing? And we'll, you know, and I'll, so here, I'll just read a little bit um, from your paper. It says, uh, so the section here is called A Trillion Dollar Gimmick, and it's in quotation marks. Seniorage has been a valid and legal method of increasing the Treasury's fiscal capacity for centuries. It was not until 2011, however, that it was seriously considered as an option for circumventing the debt ceiling. At the time, an attorney named Carlos, how do you say his name? Is it Muka? Mucha? 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 I, I, okay. okay. I would observe. Yeah, observed that the treasury appeared to have the legal power to issue coins with extremely high face value under the plain language of 31 U.S.C. section 5112 k Okay, which provides that the treasury secretary, quote, may mint and issue platinum bullion coins and proof platinum coins in accordance with such specifications, designs, varieties, quantities, denominations, and inscriptions as the secretary and the secretary's discretion may prescribe from time to time. So that's the end quote of what that, US code establishes. So I'll let you take it from here. So it was again, this was, you know, the Obama administration. Republicans are playing hardball, you know, you got Tea Party and all this kind of stuff going on. And so, again, just for so the listeners, don't get lost. The government was running huge, at this point, I think, trillion dollar deficits annually, if I, if I have my timeline correct. And so they were coming up hard against the debt ceiling that, you know, which placed a cap on the total outstanding amount of Treasury debt that. the the world could hold so this wasn't something wasn't going to give or something it had to give because the government was supposed to the federal government was supposed to be spending money and tax revenue wasn't coming close and yet they were getting close to the debt ceiling and the republicans were saying we're not going to raise the debt ceiling what are you going to do and so this guy says wait a minute we have the authority to issue platinum coins and so what was his proposal
1: yeah and so So this was a proposal that was based on – the statute that you mentioned, 31 U.S.C. 512K, um, was uh, part of a 1996 uh, coinage bill that was developed by uh, Mike Castle, a Republican senator from Utah, I believe, and uh, then director of the Mint, Philip Deal, who was also legal counsel for the Senate Finance Committee beforehand. And Deal was a pretty revolutionary director of the Mint. He helped shepherd through the Mint getting its own independent budget. So the Fed is a non, what they call a non-appropriated fund instrumentality, um, which means that its its operational funds don't come from congressional appropriations, even though it's a government instrumentality. The mint uh, until the 90s did have its funding directly integrated into the rest of the Treasury, but Philip Deal stripped it out and made it basically on par with the Fed in terms of its own independent budget authority. So the Mint gets its operating funds by minting coins and running a surplus on the signage of the cost of the coin manufacturer versus the face value, and it funds its operating budget from that, and any surplus it generates, it returns to the Treasury on an annual basis. Uh, and it's op- it's done that for years. It's usually in the the realm of sort of hundreds of millions, sometimes low level billions of dollars of of signage that it returns to the Treasury. But what that means is like the Fed, it has its own operational budget independence um, on a daily basis because it gets to spend whatever and then give the remainder back to treasury and, and again, just um, so- for
0: just for newcomers, so that term uh, signage, Steinridge
1: is a formal term that refers to the difference between the cost of production of money and the face value of, of the money itself. Right. Now in a digital world that's you know it could be hundred to zero or hundred to cents on the dollar. You know, back in the day when you're talking about gold and things like that, it could be uh, a, a relatively smaller fraction. Um, uh, but but that, that is sort of a it, it's a formal accounting. Way of recording that, you know, mm-hmm. one of the problems with it, I, ha- I actually have, I don't like that term as the the way of understanding the federal government's money power because it relies on prices denominated in the same unit of account, um, which mm-hmm. is almost recursive. So, you know, if if, coin, if copper coins, the copper to make the coins costs forty six dollars, and then you sell the coins for hundred dollars, okay, you've made a sign of your profit fifty four dollars, but what is forty six dollars? Well, forty six dollars was other dollars that you made, and right, you could right. change those values, etc. So, mm-hmm. it doesn't really give a full account of the financial power of the government. It only gives an account of what can be measured in accounting terms. Okay, anyway.
0: but but it face value, just for the superficial, for, you know, person who's new to this stuff. The fact that they don't—it doesn't take twenty-five cents worth of metal to make a quarter.
1: Yes, that's right. That's a difference the between bullion yeah. value of coins and and proof value, yes. and even the coins that are called bullion coins in the coinage act actually are, are are nominal. You can change the the price. Um, it's, okay. it's in the coinage act. But yes, the the difference here is that, um, is that the legal value of money lies in its nominal value of. Uh, clearing obligations. That's a kind of MMT charterless point that, that a lot of the legal scholars agree with, which is that, uh, and this has been sort of goes back to a case in the 16th century that uh, a lawyer at Cambridge named David Fox wrote a great article called The Case of Mixed Monies, um, confirming nominalism in the law of obligations. And up until that point, there was a big debate about uh, for example, if you had a contract that promised you, you know, payment in a certain amount of gold dollars, uh, and then prices change in the economy, are you entitled to the real purchasing power of your contract, or you're only entitled to the nominal value of the dollars? And what the common law said was, no, you're entitled to the nominal value. Um, you know, in, in price changes are, are, are not something that the, the the issue of the currency is obligated to um, to honor you for, which, you know, mm-hmm. as a side, I have this debate with libertarians and they say inflation is a tax and, you know, I understand what they're saying, but at a, at a technical level, it's not the case because the tax power as a power, a legal power was very specifically designed in relation to, you know, um, democratic legitimacy and other things. Um, or at least that's how it's justified today. And the, the, the difference is when you hold dollars, the promise of a dollar bill is that you're only is, is nominal. It's not promising a fixed amount of purchasing power. So you might not like that your purchasing power changes, but as mm-hmm. a legal matter, if you're holding $100, you know, the entity that issued that is obligated to give you $100 worth of, of legal value. They're not obligated mm-hmm. to give you the purchasing power.
0: Okay. We'll, we will get to this that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But okay, as sorry. far as uh, so the... <laughs> so go back to, yeah, to go back to
1: Philip Deal. So he really revolutionized the Mint. And one of the things he did was put this, this provision in and... The provision was originally intended to give the Treasury more flexibility to issue lower denomination platinum coins. There were collectors that said we wanna we want to invest in platinum coins, um, but uh but the the ones you're selling are too expensive. So uh this, this bill gave the Treasury Secretary authority to issue platinum coins of whatever denomination for the specific purpose of generating signage revenue that would then reduce the amount of the deficit that would have to otherwise be funded by other instruments like issuing treasury debt. So Mike mm-hmm. Castle was like a fiscal conservative who was like, this reduces mm-hmm. borrowing. That's great. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, he was probably envisaging that at the scale of tens of millions, not tens of trillions. Mm-hmm. But the way that the language of the statute was written was extremely clear. It, 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 there's no, There's no ifs and buts. There's no kind of limits on mm-hmm. that. And one of the common kind of canons of statutory construction is that you don't start digging into the sort of metaphysical intent of the original drafter or even the whole Congress and things unless you need to. And and the plain language of laws um, stands on its own, even if circumstances change. You know, someone put a law in plain language in 1788 might not have intended it to be applied the way that it's applied in 2020, their intent is not as relevant as what the plain language of the law says. They're not required to be perfect forecasters of the future. So this bill um, was pretty clear. And, and, and Mike uh, uh, Philip Deal, the Mint director, in interviews afterwards said, we knew what we were doing was unprecedented in the history of the Coinage Act. We knew that this was an authority that was more plenary and more discretionary than any other coinage authority that the Treasury had ever been granted. So mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't that they didn't realize how the plain language was written it's just that they they weren't envisaging these debt selling crises and, and the potential need to use this other tool. Um, so the mint has the authority to to issue the coin the coin would then be deposited
0: at the fed the fed we, is the well treasurer. let's we, we yeah. glided over it's w- what was the face value that this Carlos guy suggested
1: he suggested a trillion. I've heard people suggest a hundred trillion. You know, yeah. I, we proposed a series of trillion-dollar coins just so that you can, you know, get past the psychological hurdle of only needing to issue one. If you can issue two, you can issue a third. Um, but it doesn't really matter. The point is that this is a, a sort of infinite nominal capacity.
0: Okay, but but, that, but that's the point that this thing that clearly the the guy who wrote that legislation was picturing the treasury get, issuing stuff for collectors who wanted to you know, add to their platinum coin collection. Yeah, no, no, that is undeniable. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I'm not saying whether it's right, but just so people understand the story, and then what this Carlos Muccia guy realizes, wait a minute, why don't we just issue a trillion-dollar platinum coin, and that's... Yeah, and and, and one of the interesting things is that the underlying logic
1: is the same. Right. The original idea was, we'll issue these coins, we'll use the signage value that avoids the need to issue more debt. Right. And we'll issue a coin, get the signage value, Mm. avoid the need to issue more debt. Now, it's a different degree of scale, but plenty of laws have... have taken on life of their own and things. And more importantly, um, I think that Carlos's point, which I try to make in the paper and kind of go into detail, is that it may not even be discretionary. It may not even be a question of, like, it could. It may actually be a question of maybe the Treasury must. And I, Mm -hmm. I, I provide the statutes in the paper, but if you look at the Coinage Act, it says the Treasury Secretary shall issue Mm -hmm. coins in as many denominations and needs as to meet the needs of the United States. That's like at the top of the Coinage Act. Right. In the debt ceiling, sorry, in the public debt statutes, it says the Treasury Secretary may issue these following instruments. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the way that the powers are set up right now, the Treasury Secretary is required to honor spending. It shall issue coins in, in needs to meet the needs of the United States. And it may issue bonds. And the way that I have read those, and I think is a coherent reading of those, is that the Treasury Secretary on a daily basis has the discretion to finance its deficit or offset the spending of its deficit by issuing Treasury securities. Um, But in the event that it's not allowed to do that, it still has a funding source available to it that it is obligated to use to meet the needs of the United States. Mm -hmm. If it then faces a situation where the alternative is issue debt and break the debt ceiling issue another instrument and keep your spending obligations or not meet your spending obligations it's an obvious no-brainer which one of those is the is the preferred choice it's use the Mm -hmm. legal tool at your disposal to meet your legal obligations Mm -hmm. and and the coinage act is pretty clear that the treasury not only can do that but is actually required to um Mm -hmm. and if one of its obligations is to meet any debt that congress has assumed then it can't say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm out of money. Right. And then Congress says, what about that power I gave you? And Treasury Secretary says, oh, I don't feel like using that. So I think I'm just going to shut down the government. My argument is the Treasury Secretary doesn't actually have that discretion. And mm-hmm. if the Treasury Secretary or the president does exercise that discretion, it's, it's lying and it's, it's actually a power grab away from Congress. So when Obama said in 2010 you know, uh, or 2008 – Um, in a 60 Minutes interview, someone said, you know, when are we going to run out of money? He said, we're out of money now. Mm -hmm. And in that debt ceiling debate, he, you know, I spoke to people in Treasury about this. They didn't want to consider the coin, not because they didn't think it would work or because they thought it'd be inflationary or anything like that. They didn't want it because they wanted the Republicans to fold. They wanted to win the political battle. And the only way they could win the political battle head on was if the Republicans were responsible for blowing up the economy. Mm -hmm. And so- it needed to be that there was no other option because that was the only right. way the republicans would be on the hook for whatever happened afterwards timmy Geithner could say i guess those social security checks aren't going to go out i guess you know the republicans don't want people to to eat and the effect of that was to put the burden on the republicans to come to the negotiating table politically maybe very smart from a point of view of good fiscal design what it did was gave the president the the green light to lie and to put a gun to the head of the American economy and threaten to pull the trigger unless the Republicans came to the table. And Mm -hmm. I think a president that lies about the options that they have available to them so that they can justify threatening unconstitutional behavior, like a government shutdown, that's the abuse of treasury power. That's the like treasury run amok. You know, people say, Mm -hmm. well, imagine if the treasury could issue all these coins. It would be crazy. There'd be no discipline. To me, the lack of discipline is a president who can pretend to the public that he had to shut down the whole government just to win a political
0: fight. So this is funny because we're looking at this from such different perspectives. So to be clear on that point, when somebody says, wait a minute, Ron, you're you're thinking the treasury can issue trillion dollars. And, and by the way, mechanically, they would issue the coin. They wouldn't go spend it, you know, it. No, they, they would issue the they coin. They wouldn't put a trillion put dollar coin on the Fed. counter at Joe's Diner. They'd go put it at the Fed. And, the, and Fed the Fed would credit. credit
1: their account, and the accounts right. would go out. Now, if right. you had a digital currency system administered like by the Treasury, Treasury or something, you wouldn't need to do that. But yes, yeah. currently the Fed clears all electronic payments yeah. on behalf of the Treasury as its fiscal agent. So, so it that's go
0: how, yeah, they could make it fungible and take a physical tr- trillion-dollar coin and turn it into digital money that they could go. Spend. Yeah, and and
1: yeah. and it would it would the coin would be there as a legal asset on the Fed's balance sheet. So it would yeah. it would it would equal each other out. I mean, I right. George Selgin has made some arguments about the interest on reserves point, which I've I've responded elsewhere, but um, but but basically, the idea here is this: isn't the Treasury borrowing from the Federal Reserve? You know, this isn't the Treasury running an overdraft at right. the Fed or right. undermining Fed independence. This is the Treasury using its own legal money power, which has existed in parallel to the Fed since the since the Mint in 1792, mm-hmm. um, and using that power to create money and simply using the, the Fed as a fiscal agent, not as a monetary agent.
0: Right. So for the listeners out there who are hearing you say this and they're just, their jaws are dropped. And what, yeah, wouldn't that be crazy? Is your response to say, well, no, they still can't just issue 60 of these things and go spend $60 trillion that Congress hasn't first authorized.
1: Yeah, of course, that's exactly right. They can't spend anything that Congress hasn't authorized. And that's the other story that I was telling in my paper is that Mm -hmm. every time the president tried to spend more than they were authorized in the 19th century, they got slapped down. And then we eventually had uh, uh, an act- um, uh, uh my mind is blanking it's not the anti empowerment act it's the anti anyway there's a there's a there's a name for the 19th century where um basically uh, you, you can't spend more than you've you've had appropriated so yeah the treasury wouldn't go out of control on spending on this um and of course the other thing which is maybe also a thing your listeners sort of don't agree with me or or I haven't grappled yet is that is that from from a kind of inflationary point of view there's no difference um now as i mentioned before under a gold standard regime there could have been a different effect on your gold reserve liquidity pressures right you know if if you if you were used to issuing 30-year bonds and then suddenly you started financing the deficit in say 1920 you know mm-hmm. by issuing coins then then those dollars would be convertible into gold on demand and that would have potentially had a different effect on the gold reserves of the united states now once you suspend gold convertibility that that goes away and and the only difference between holding 100 dollars of a coin asset and 100 dollars of government securities from the fed's point of view uh, is the interest rate you're paying on them,
0: um, and okay, yeah. And why don't we? When yeah, when interest
1: rates are zero, they're functionally
0: the same. Okay, yeah. So why don't we go ahead and go down that train of thought? Because it's, I think I might disagree with you. Well, let me just be sure. And, and by the way, just for the listener, remember the point of this is I'm not debating Rowan. We're just trying to see each yeah, other's yeah. perspective here. So the fact that I'm not. Pouncing doesn't mean I agree with everything he's saying up till now, but I would let him explain his yeah, yeah. perspective. I mean, so,
1: and, and let me know if there are disagreements sure. at a sort of substantive level that, you know, rather than just sort of a different sure. valency on the same facts, you
0: know. Okay. So in that standoff that I guess started in 2011 there, people brought up the trillion dollar thing. And by the way, folks, I'll link at the uh, at BobMurphyShow.com slash 130. Did you see Rowan on The Daily Show, uh, Jon Stewart, make fun of the trillion dollar coin?
1: Yeah, I mean, and this this is such a great example of the stuff that I talk about in the later part of the paper of the sort of ah. psycho the psychological benefits of the coin because it mm. it disrupts the way that people think and you know John Stewart loved to describe himself throughout his whole career I'm sure you remember this as sort of like libertarian on some issues and liberal on some issues and like often mm. the libertarian stuff was like drug legalization and fiscal conservatism those are like the two things that he was like willing to kind of put his mm. hand up for and maybe like being anti-war and like. As a leftist, I'm pretty anti-war. I'm pretty pro-drug legalization. You know, the major one that I disagreed in was, was the fiscal conservative stuff. And when the coin came around, he sort of said like, well, this is so ridiculous. If we're going to do this, why not issue a hundred quadrillion dollar coin? And mm-hmm. like, it was so ridiculous that his head exploded. Um, but he's a clown, and he's also a clown that's not as smart as he thinks he is. Um, and spent a lot of time sort of telling the world that all we needed to do was be reasonable and grown ups to each other, and the world would be better. And if you like look at the world right now, I think it's been a thorough repudiation of his sort of reasonableness as the cure to everything vision. Um, but he ended up having a fight with Paul Krugman about that issue.
0: Oh, um, I, I know that was my favorite bit ever. So yeah,
1: and like you know, I don't have much love for Paul Krugman, and you know, you probably seen that, but. In that situation, the idea that like John Stewart had like thought through this issue at all, it, it wasn't sort of he saying, well, I've been reading Austrians and they say this and Paul, are you wrong on this natural rate of interest question? It was just like, this is silly and I'm a reasonable person who understands sensible stuff and therefore like this must be untrue, um, which for someone that spent so long talking about reasonableness and expertise mm-hmm. and stuff was quite funny that he just sort of reverted to this knee jerk like, mm-hmm. nah, you know, um, yeah. But the, the, the point of my paper is that like, you know, John Stewart's a clown. His job is to make people laugh. Fine. But for a lot of people, that was actually a kind of brain explosion moment because it was mm-hmm. like, well, wait a second. This debate isn't about what we thought it was about. <laughs> you know, it's right. not about we can run out of money. It's about all this other stuff. And and it was a very uh, pedagogically clarifying moment. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay. I'm
0: so like, let me, let me, so I just was asking you just because, yeah, I'm going to link to that folks because it's. I'm sure the people listening who like Jon Stewart, like when he defends Ron Paul, will also like when he makes fun of Krugman on the trillion dollar coin. Perhaps they shouldn't, but I think they will enjoy it. (laughs) Um, So you said a minute ago, and I just want to tease this out, something like inflationary pressures, by which you mean like on prices, uh, would be the same either way. So, so So what happened in fact is they didn't, you know, the Republicans caved, they did raise the debt ceiling. And so rather than the, uh, treasury minting a trillion dollar coin and giving it to the Fed. and da, da, da. Instead, what happened is they, they minted still a trillion dollars of securities. Right. So the Treasury issued yeah a trillion dollars more in in outstanding federal debt. And is your point that ultimately the Fed through the secondary markets took that onto its balance sheet and created a trillion extra dollars in base money? Uh,
1: it's deeper than that. It's the okay. it's the government debt is base money. Um, and okay, and the, so yeah, so here's yeah, okay. That, that's so the distinction. So, so that like, think about it, mm-hmm. and, and this goes back to the point that I was making at the beginning about like, there's a lot of different debt ceilings, right? Don't think about it as like money and debt. Think about it as there's different instruments, and those different instruments have different properties. Some instruments you can use at a vending machine. Some instruments mm-hmm. you can use to make a you know $100 billion transaction in the financial markets. Some instruments pay interest. Some instruments don't pay interest, but they are decentralized and anonymous, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all these kinds of government liabilities, all of which are guaranteed at nominal face value and are uh, uh, backed by the federal government's full faith and credit. Which one of those instruments you choose to issue, it has more to do with the difference between how many quarters you want to issue versus $20 bills, that kind of question. Nathan Tankers, my colleague, has started calling you know, treasury debt large denomination money. And you can make an argument that the the fact that one pays interest and one doesn't pay interest is, is the relevant distinguishing point. But if that's the case, then reserves that pay interest are... Oh. Debt and reserves that don't pay interest are money. So you're in this really bizarre position where if you're paying zero interest on settlement balances at the Fed, that's money. If you're paying 0.25% interest, that's debt. So okay. I don't think that the paying of interest is the relevant distinction between debt and money. I think the fact that treasury debt is is a safe investment asset. It's a store of wealth. It promises nominal value um, makes it a form of money. It just has different properties in in, in relation to the payment system.
0: Okay, so I agree. The fact that one earns interest or not isn't relevant because also if, if, the, if there were 0% interest rates on treasury debt, most people who think there is a distinction wouldn't say, oh, now they're equivalent to cash.
1: There you are. So so, so, so say that so say I, you have
0: got two zero interest
1: instruments for a second. You've got mm-hmm. a three-month treasury bill and you've got uh, uh, a coin. What, mm-hmm. what is the difference in the economy whether the, the Fed is holding an asset that's a three-month treasury bill that they roll over forever? Every three months they just roll it over? Or – Uh, a coin that's held indefinitely.
0: Okay. Hang on though. So I would say the difference between the debt and the money is you can't spend treasury securities in the grocery store. So that's that's the difference.
1: But that's where I said it's a payments system issue, right? right? You also can't spend a savings deposit in the grocery store, right? If you wanted to spend money in your savings account, I mean, now Mm -hmm. some savings account do allow you, but in the past, Mm -hmm if you wanted to spend money from your savings account, what would you have to do? You'd have to transfer it to your checking account and then spend it, Right. yeah? So if you've got money in a government security and you want to spend it, what do you do? You transfer it into your checking account and you spend it. But we don't call savings deposits not money. We just call it a slightly less liquid form of money.
0: Okay, hang on. (laughs) So here's, so where I thought you were going before when I I was trying to explain, understand your perspective, as I said, I agree with you, If instead of taking the trillion, instead of issuing a trillion dollar coin and giving to the Fed and then getting a trillion dollars credited to their the treasury checking account that way, if instead they issued a trillion in new debt, people in the private sector gave them a trillion dollars in cash or electronic bank deposits, and then the Fed created a trillion dollars in extra base money and then absorbed. So if it basically ended up on the Fed's balance sheet, then I agree with you, it's largely the same. Whether the Fed's holding a coin. Or extra tre- treasury debt, but isn't there a distinction if okay, the Fed hasn't no, that hasn't monetized good. it? Okay, well, yeah. if,
1: if we're on the same page about that, so uh, if okay. if the Fed is ending up holding an obligation from the U.S. government, yes. it doesn't mm-hmm. matter whether we call it a coin or debt. Yeah, it, it will have the same effects. Okay, good. So yes, to go to your question, and this is where the MMT consolidation stuff comes in. Yeah, um, right. Because if you, uh, the way that I would describe it, and and maybe this is where we disagree, so we can start there, is the the amount of Treasury debt in circulation at any point in time is a decision made by the Treasury and the Fed in conjunction, where the Treasury has discretion ex ante and the Fed has discretion ex post. Mm-hmm. So I would describe it what the Treasury starts, the Fed finishes, and they often coordinate a fair bit, but not entirely. And and my colleague Nathan tankus has just written about this as well. And what that means is, if the if the Fed decides that they want more thirty year bonds in circulation than they currently exist, it's got Sort of two options. One is to sell bonds that it owns. The other is to ask the Treasury to issue more bonds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if the Treasury own, uh, only issued 30 year bonds, didn't issue anything else, and then the Fed, the, the day after the Treasury issued them, chose to replace half of them with cash. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My argument is that's exactly the same as if the Treasury issued only cash. And then the Fed, the next day, re- replaced half of them with bonds. Right. Because, because, so it doesn't really matter what instruments the Treasury issues to finance its spending. What matters is the instruments that the Fed chooses to let remain in circulation at the end of the process. Does that make sense? Do you, I don't know if you agree with that. But my, argument, my point is, like from a monetary policy perspective, at any point in time, if the Fed wants there to be less reserves and more bonds, or more bonds and less reserves, it will just make that transaction. So the, the question of how many bonds are in the economy is a question the Fed is always modulating at any point in time. Sometimes it chooses to let it float because it likes the market signals as a, as a sort of data point. But it could choose tomorrow to set the long-term curve, you know, like Japan is mm-hmm. doing or it could tell treasury hey we don't need you to issue 30 year bonds anymore just issue 10 year bonds and then there would be no 30 year rate right or it could say issue 100 year bonds and then suddenly a 100 year rate would come into existence that didn't exist beforehand so when it comes to this this the story that you told uh, i think you started halfway through you said the treasury sells the bond to private investors and then fed comes on and monetizes it but what actually happens is and Scott Fullweiler has a great piece on this called Treasury Debt Operations, a social fabric matrix account or something. Just type in Scott Fullwiler Treasury Debt Operations, you'll find it. Where so, so say the Treasury um, has been monitoring its spending for the month and it knows that next week it's gonna need, you know, another 20 billion in its Treasury operating account to stay in a positive balance. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than letting it get to zero, it, it preemptively plans so that that problem doesn't arise. And it says to the Fed, hey, we're going to issue 20 billion more um, T-bonds next month. The Fed goes, um, okay, but we've got a pretty nice balance that we've been maintaining of you know reserves and bonds in the economy right now. We'd like to roughly keep that balance because it's sort of working for our monetary policy liquidity purposes. So uh, if... You were going to sell those bonds um, and we did nothing, then that would take $20 billion of reserves out of the private sector, right? Mm -hmm. Because those private investors would have been replacing reserves of bonds. So what we're going to do is uh, an hour before the the auction, we're going to buy up $20 billion of T-bonds that are already in circulation so that a bunch of actors will now have $20 billion of reserves extra relative to our nice sort of baseline that we had beforehand. Mm-hmm. So they do that preemptive purchase, and it might not be a permanent purchase. It might be a repo. Mm-hmm. And now the private sector's got $20 billion in extra reserves. Now, maybe the private sector was quite happy with their previous distribution of reserves versus bonds, but this was a sort of sweetheart deal. They got a few basis points of you know on the capital mm-hmm. gain side of the bond, so they did it. Now the, the auction comes around. They use that $20, 20 billion, that the Fed just pumped in. They buy the bonds, and now the Treasury's got that $20 billion, mm-hmm. right? So now, functionally, if you stop the clock at this moment, the Fed's bought $20 billion worth of bonds. The private sector is left back in the position that it was at the beginning, with a little bit of sweet you know, profits along the way for participating in, in all the steps. Mm-hmm. And the Treasury's got $20 billion of new funds in its Treasury general account. Now... I would describe that as the Fed monetizing that debt through the back door. Now, it's used the primary dealers to do it, but it provided the funds that the primary dealers then used to purchase. Right, yeah, and I have no problem with any okay. of that. Okay, yeah. good. So now the last part of that story is now the Treasury spends that money, right? Mm-hmm. The Treasury spends that money into the economy. Now there's $20 billion more in reserves on top of everything that existed before, right? Now the Fed goes, hey, maybe this is now skewed – the balance from the way that we wanted it to be. So, we're going to go back to that original deal that we did, that original repo where we had bought up a bunch of bonds in exchange for the reserves so that the private actors could use the reserves to buy. Um, and we're going to unwind that. So, that new $20, $20 billion of reserves is now going to be unwound. And now the, the $20 billion of treasuries that we originally bought from the private sector is going to come back in. So, if you look at the end of that story, Now we're back to something where the private sector is the one holding more of the bonds, right? And the Fed has sort of unmonetized what it monetized in the middle of that process, right? The Fed's back to holding less bonds, but also having less reserves. And so if you looked at that at the end of the process, you'd say, oh, well, the Treasury has lent to the, the the, the Treasury has borrowed from the private sector and the private sector is holding a bunch of bonds, right? That would be what you, if you just saw the end of that process, that's what it would look like. The Fed isn't involved. It hasn't monetized anything, Uh, It's just a bunch of private sector actors holding some bonds that it purchased from the Treasury. But when you stop and look through all those steps that I described, it becomes very clear that at every point in time, the Fed is stepping in the middle to keep that balance exactly where it wants. So our argument is it doesn't matter if you finance the deficit by issuing coins or issuing bonds. As long as the Fed has the tools to keep the distribution between the two kinds of instruments on the Mm -hmm. back end – it will do that. It doesn't matter how you set it up at the outset. Now, you know, you could say, well, what happens if the Treasury uh, only issues coins from now on, and then the Fed, you know, runs down its whole supply of Treasury securities and runs out of Treasury securities? What's it going to do? How's it going to, you know, keep sucking liquidity out? Well, one option is for the Fed to issue its own securities. I think that's a smarter option. It's cleaner. It's simpler. It gives the Fed the discretion over it. It doesn't need to constantly coordinate with the Treasury. Central bank securities mm-hmm. would be just as safe as treasury securities, if not safer. Um, and uh, the, the other side of it is that uh, the, they could just arrange with the treasury to have a separate facility that provides those bonds that has nothing to do with the budget process. And we had that in 2010, what they call the supplementary financing program, where the, where the Fed said, we need more bonds <laughs> – and the Treasury said, well, we don't need to issue more bonds. We've we, we already issued all the bonds that we need for our deficit. Mm. And the Fed said, but we need more bonds for financial market purposes. And they said, okay, we'll create a facility and we'll issue all these bonds just, just so that you have them in circulation.
0: Yep. Hey, folks, let's take a pause from the discussion to mention why you should contribute to The Bob Murphy Show. I don't want to do ads. I think that would change the flavor of the podcast. And so I rely on support directly provided by you, the listener. And so I'm going to ask you, if you like the show, the content I provide, and you haven't done so already, why don't you uh, give it a whirl? Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. thanks for listening. By the way, let me ask, Are you, we are at the time, but I'm willing to sit here yeah, for a while. Yeah. You're, okay, okay, great. So you just let me know when you got to go. Yeah, okay, no, I'm, I'm here. Let, let me, so th- this is really interesting because it's, I understand exactly what you're saying. So I guess my concern is as an economist, trying to teach the public how things work.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm
0: concerned that when you say things like that, they're going to get the wrong idea. Or So let me let me yeah, try well, yeah, this. Yeah, what idea? Yeah, yeah. Let, me, let me first say two things, and then if you're okay with it, then I'll say why I, I prefer teaching it the one way or the other. And, and again, not that one's right or wrong, but just uh, I'm explaining why I wouldn't want to explain things the way you did, even though you're right. I don't think there's anything wrong in what you just said. All right, so let's get a situation that right now we start with the balanced budget. Now the federal government wants to spend an extra trillion dollars. One option is they mint a platinum coin with face value of a trillion. They go put it on deposit with the Fed. The Fed gives the mint a trillion dollars. You know, they pay their little bill, you know, however much platinum they bought. And so the the balance gets remitted to the treasury. It's basically got an extra trillion dollars now to spend. And there's everybody, I think, gets how that's inflationary in the conventional sense that, that it's like they created an extra trillion dollars of new spending into the economy.
1: Just to be clear, you're using inflationary in the Austrian sense of just an increase in the money supply, not necessarily an increase in prices.
0: Right. But yeah. then to the extent that an extra trillion dollars in the hands of the public would tend to push up prices, you know, so yeah, monetary if, if, if inflation. I agree, if I don't agree yeah. with
1: that, then then this definition is only about, at a formal sense, you're not actually saying right. there's inflation that we can measure and prove. You're saying that there's definitional inflation because the money supply is
0: Yes, there's an extra, yeah, for, for people who are worried about inflationary pressures, they get why, wait a minute, well, oh, that gives me the heebie-jeebies if they, if they did that. Um, well— well, I, okay. Where I'm yeah, going okay, so though, is finish, whatever, finish, whatever right. the inflationary pressure, maybe you're gonna say they're mute or whatever, but whatever just, the inflationary pressure I would say
1: the inflationary yeah. pressure comes from the spending, not from the financing tool. So I would say that, that there they might be inflash- inflationary pressure from a trillion dollars of spending, but that it, it, it wouldn't be dependent on whether that spending was financed by issuing a bond or issuing a coin. But maybe that's where we disagree. So I'll, the, I'll, right, that's,
0: that's that. where we're coming. Yeah, so this is this is good. Okay. So but that process where they take a, a little chunk of metal write a trillion dollars on it, give it to the Fed. Now there's electronically a trillion dollars more and spending is a trillion dollars higher than it otherwise would be. And there's nothing, there's no mechanism by which a trillion is gonna get sucked out of the economy and go back to the Fed because of that, or the, the treasury, right? This is, this is a new- So we're just
1: talking about a deficit. We're just talking about a deficit. Yeah.
0: Yep. Right. Okay. So people can see how that would put pressure on prices. That, that whole, all those actions put together tends to raise prices. Or at least make them higher I I than the other I don't
1: right. agree with that, but if that's where you're going, let's start with that assumption. I don't agree with that, yeah.
0: No, well, no, no but I mean, my scenario th- does involve a, a trillion-dollar deficit that otherwise wouldn't have happened.
1: I know, I know, but I'm saying, like, from a, from a basic kind of Keynesian logic, which I'm sure you don't agree with, but if if that spending generates production that otherwise wouldn't have occurred, then there's no inherent reason why more spending necessarily doesn't translate to increased productive output rather than inflation. Um you, you might you might have a political or ideological theory that says all well, government spending is per se inefficient, therefore it has to be, which I disagree with. But but the idea that like you could spend more, that spending could generate new production, and the end result would be no no change to price levels or the value of currency, but just increased
0: output. Oh, okay, but a second ago you said government spending is inflationary.
1: No, 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 no. I I was, I was just trying to understand your point because I don't agree that it's inflation. I think this is a basic Keynesian point. But I, but I understand that some Austrians, some Austrians say that any increase of the money supply is per se inflationary because you're inflating the value of existing currency assets, and that even if it doesn't translate into price increases, in the absence of that, you might have seen price decreases. So it's an effective price increase. I was just trying to sort of,
0: yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Here I'm trying to zoom in on the the thing you said a minute ago when you repeated that financing an extra trillion in deficit spending, or, or sorry, an extra trillion in spending, either by issuing extra debt or by minting a trillion dollar coin, has the same effect for people who are yeah, worried about inflation. Yeah, it has the same inflationary effect. It doesn't mean that inflationary yes. effect is positive. It's just
1: that right, it's not right.
0: contingent on whether right. it's a so, coin right. or... So that's what I'm trying to isolate. So whether okay, whatever sorry. we think of as the inflationary effect, and you're right, whether you're Keynesian or Austrian or MMT, what the inflationary effect is. Yeah, that
1: a, a trillion could be way too yeah. small depending on circumstances, sure. in my view. Right,
0: yeah. okay. But whatever it is, we all can think through scenario A where they do it by issuing a trillion-dollar coin, okay? In scenario B, if they do it, um, the, the federal government, the Treasury issues a trillion dollars in, in new bonds. And so if the Fed sits on the sidelines, I would say that extra spending doesn't, had the same inflationary pressure. And again, I mean price inflationary pressure because there's not any new money per se. It's just the private sector handed over a trillion dollars in cash. Think of it intuitively. They got a trillion dollars worth of bonds. Then the treasury took that cash and spent it. And so it's not that there's more money in whereas relative to scenario A, there's, there are, there's definitely more well, do, cash. Do
1: you agree that there's more assets? Like, like all, the, all the bondholders still have a trillion dollars worth of assets on their balance sheet, right? Right. And now all the recipients of that spending now have a trillion dollars of dollars in their accounts, right? Right. So at the end of that process, all the, all the bond investors are still whole. They haven't got any less wealthy. They're not taking any less trips to Aspen. They're not buying any less Maseratis. They're not doing – you know, any or, or pension funds are not sort of giving out less in pensions, right? Everybody who was invested in bonds is still made whole on their wealth. And now there's another trillion dollars of assets that other individuals own.
0: See, see no, I – I don't agree with that. Like in general, when people save, they do have to cut back. So, be, be, and again, because you can't go spend the bonds at the grocery store or whatever.
1: But, but, but So, okay, say you're an investor with a billion dollars. Mm. How much of that billion are you spending at the grocery store? And how much are you investing in financial assets for the point of earning a yield? Like I mean, that, that's, yeah. that's my argument is that, that people are not investing in government bonds as a form of deferred consumption. They're investing it as a form of safe investment asset and that like the reason that warren buffett has 40 billion dollars in government bonds like is because he wants it to be there and if he decided he wanted to go buy 40 billion dollars worth of milk he would just do that but the reason he's not buying 40 billion dollars of milk is not because he's somehow forced to not spend that money because it's locked up in bonds that's not true at all he's not spending that money because he doesn't want to
0: okay um
1: and like say like, your pension fund, say your pension fund, mm-hmm. you're required to store a certain proportion of your – to invest a certain proportion of your assets in safe assets, right, as, as a prudential regulatory requirement. So you, you have to store those funds in something that meets that standard. If government bonds are the best thing that meets that standard and earns the best yield,
0: you do that. But like you're a pension fund. You're not buying milk. You're investing. R- right. So, uh... Let, let me go ahead and finish the train of thought, and then we can yeah, come sorry, back to I'm this. Sorry, no, to no, no, it's ahead. it's fine, and I and I do understand why you're bringing that up because again, we're we are looking at this. There's a, there's a pretty basic disconnect, and that's what I'm trying to isolate. So on that one, so the difference between scenario A and scenario A, there's an extra trillion dollars in cash in the economy. In scenario B, there's an extra trillion dollars in government debt in terms of assets, right? But the cash is the same, and so I would say. What happens in scenario B is there's not – people can't spend as much more because you can only spend cash. And so what would – interest rates on the government debt would tend to be higher than in scenario A. Like to, to, uh, on the margin, people making portfolio decisions to induce them to be willing to hold a greater volume of – in other words, there was equilibrium originally. Now there's an extra trillion dollars in government debt coming on the market. Well, but what if there's, the yield what if there's, there's already an insatiable
1: higher. demand for that safe asset? Like what if what if the problem is an undersupply of safe investment assets? You don't need to induce them to hold higher; they want to hold more of them. You just haven't provided it up until now.
0: <laughs> it's it's tricky for me to.
1: Are you like? I mean, no, but I, I, I ask it as a genuine question because my my understanding is most treasury bond auctions tend to be oversubscribed, even in countries where that rate is extremely low. I mean, the, Japan's holding thirty year bonds really low right now, and like it's it's not causing any less demand for them. And part of the part of the like the the idea of a safe asset is that you can't consider a stock investment an equal substitute. If you're a portfolio manager, you have a requirement of, of making maintaining a risk profile of your investments where some fraction of them are safe. Stocks don't count as safe. You, you, you don't meet that legal requirement by comparing this interest-earning asset versus this interest-earning asset. It actually matters how safe the guarantee is. And, and as a result of that, there's a demand for treasury debt that's not simply related to its interest rate relative to other assets. It's related to its safety as an investment asset. But like the way I would describe that is the investors in that story might not have a marginal higher propensity to consume because that's not the point of why they invest in the treasury bonds. But the people who receive the new money will. So like the the, the people who had a billion dollars at the start of this story now have a billion dollars of assets. Okay, they weren't going to spend that on milk before. They're not going to spend that on milk now.
0: Another bunch of people do have a new billion dollars, which they might spend on milk. Uh it's funny because I was trying to like come back to something really basic and then figure out where our disagreement is. And no matter how far I push it, it's like I can't find a, a, a part of common ground where its it sounds like you're saying. Uh, well, okay, can I,
1: can, I, can I frame it maybe
0: a different yeah. way here? Mm. It, it, because, because the other thing well, is- can, you're hey, telling, Actually, can, can I just, let me just say one yeah, thing. Yeah, sure. For the people at home, like the people are like, no, I get what you're saying, Bob, where are you going with this? Let me just finish it for the sake of- yeah, So yeah, where yeah, I was going to go is, to the extent that people do think issuing more debt And again, maybe if people want to think of a smaller country that isn't, you know, the issue of the world reserve currency, maybe that helps or something. But to the extent that people do think other things equal, pouring helicopter money in the economy tends to make prices higher or issuing more bonds tends to make the interest rate on those bonds go up to induce investors to be willing to hold more in their portfolio relative to the original equilibrium. To the extent that you think those two things are generally true, then I would say, okay, the way they become equivalent, And I could see how there's a sense in which the Fed or sorry, the treasury issuing a coin versus bonds is basically the same Is if in the scenario B where there's no platinum coin, the the treasury issues debt that starts pushing up the yield on treasury debt. Also like on the, uh, the federal funds rate and whatever. And then the Fed says, wait a minute, we had our interest rate target. Now interest rates are going higher than we wanted. So for us to maintain our current stance of monetary policy we are going to go buy more bonds and create more cash,
1: yeah. and so
0: yeah, and so that's yeah, the I, sense in which yeah that I could see how if your point is given whatever the Fed's stance is on what the correct you know trade-off between inflation and unemployment or whatever whatever tools are I could if, if that's what you mean and you're saying so in a sense it's the same because if the Fed were to refrain from monetizing that extra debt the way they would clearly monetize the mint the the platinum coin. Then they would, you know, they lose control of their interest rate. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, another so way to could frame see that. that. I think,
1: yeah, I think mm-hmm. we're on the same page there. Another way to frame that is like what you're doing is you're 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 telling a story where there's a series of discrete steps, and you're mm-hmm. stopping at each discrete step, and you're saying like, what would they think if this happened at this step, and then they make the next step. And the point that I'm trying to make, or the way that I see this, is mm-hmm. that that whole process, each of those steps, is automatically linked to the previous one under the current operating regime. So it's sort of like mm-hmm. you zig Isaac, you know, you you go high and go low like and already the the Fed is doing every day a thousand micromanaging decisions mm-hmm. to do what you're talking about the defensive interest rate operations okay. So right? every day it looks out and it goes is there too many bonds is there too much cash and and my argument is it doesn't matter whether the starting ratio is 100-0 50-50 or 100-0 the other way that process is going to look exactly the same so right now, the Treasury might issue, you know, 30% 30-year bonds, 20% 10-year bonds, whatever, whatever, whatever. And the Fed might go on the other side, I don't like that distribution. That's not good for us. It doesn't work for us. And the Treasury goes, well, that works for us because that's the cheapest interest rates that we're getting on the auction side. Mm-hmm. The Fed goes, yeah, but I don't I don't like that for liquidity purposes. So the Fed will intervene to, to change that distribution. Mm-hmm. Now, whether it does that from a position of only coins or only bonds, it, it doesn't, or it does it so that it changes it from 80 20 to 50 50 or from 51 49 to 50 50. It's all functionally the same. So, like, you, your point that, like, if you stopped in the middle of this process and said, actually, I don't care about interest rates anymore, um, then then things might be different. But that's not the, that's not the regime we're in right now. The right, regime right, we're in but, right now okay. is that the Fed is sets a policy rate. And it determines the distribution of bonds and reserves, and because of that, it, what you're describing, it it will look at the out at the outset, uh, sorry, at the end of the process, exactly the same as the current system.
0: Okay, great. So now that you at least see where I'm coming from, and again, I realize you would have asterisks and and caveats with those two scenario A and B. The reason I I would want to be more careful and spell it out step by step if somebody says, "Hey, Murphy, do you think?" The Fed or the Treasury, you know, issuing a trillion dollar coin or just issuing more bonds is the same. And I would want to say, well, only if the Fed monetizes that extra issuance, because otherwise, I would just say interest rates would go up and it wouldn't be as inflationary on prices. Is because if a cor- I'm I'm concerned that the average person who's never thought this stuff through, like, do you agree if a corporation decides to issue bonds and spend money and you know run a deficit to build a new factory or something, that that's you wouldn't call that inflationary, right? That's just a finance, you know. That's the corporation no, no, I, will, can't.
1: I, I would call that inflationary in the sense that it generates new demand. Yeah, of course. I mean, this is a huge part of the post-Keynesian literature about endogenous money. Is that any spending can be a source of demand. So if if you and I go to a local bar and the bar gives us a bar tab rolling for six months, right? Mm-hmm. And and then so you and I like run up a bunch of drinks there, but we have the money in our account. Well, that money is in two places at the same time for the duration of that bar tab, right? Like I've still got that money in my account. I could go invest that in the stock market and earn 5% interest for the six months in that interim period. It's nice to have my money and nice not to have that, you know, have something I have okay, to satisfy. So like when so,
0: Zimbabwe has hyperinflation, are you first to say, well, let's go see if it's because people ramp their bar tabs? I mean, you, you laugh, right? I, I, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but uh-huh. if you look at most
1: of the, the the increase in, for example, financial asset prices around the world right now, most of it is driven by the activities of private financial institutions. And like if I looked at the United States right now or in 2008 and I said, mm-hmm. hey, there's a lot of new cr- spending going on right now. Where's the majority of that spending coming from? Well, a ton of it is coming from mortgage lending. And that is new money creation. Every time a bank makes a mortgage loan, it's new money creation. And, and every time a shadow bank makes some sort of leveraged investment, that is increasing the amount of spending, purchasing power that otherwise would have been out there in existence. So this is one of the reasons why if you have a very kind of two-dimensional view of, not you personally, but if somebody has a two-dimensional view of what counts as money, mm-hmm. then they will spend a huge amount of time focusing on one set of aggregates. Um, and and it's to me, it's like looking for where you lost your keys um, under the streetlight because that's where the streetlight is, not because that's where you mm-hmm. lost your keys, right? Like it's very hard to find a measure of all the different forms of quote unquote money that could be in, that could contribute to spending and inflation. That's why we have M zero, M one, M two, M three, M four. Now my argument is that like that goes all the way down to the bar tab. That doesn't mean that the bar tab is the place that I would start focusing on inflation regulation, right. but it does mean that, like, the, you know, fiat money has a unique place at the top of that hierarchy, but every entity in that hierarchy has the potential to engage in credit activity, which can expand and contract purchasing power and have an effect on overall real resource consumption, which is why, for example, my colleague Nathan Tankus and I, when we talk about inflation management in the Green New Deal, one of the first things that we talk about is regulating private credit. Um, and from my point of view that isn't sort of just a matter of like impinging on private freedom and having Stalinism because a lot of the private credit that's issued right now is issued under government guarantee. If you're a licensed right. bank with deposit insurance, mm-hmm. if you're, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you're basically, as as my advisor, Bob Hockett would say, a franchisee of the government. You're you're mm-hmm. extending credit backed by the full faith in, of the United States. So you're it's already public spending. It's just public spending that's sort of been quasi privatized. Okay.
0: I don't know how much you know of my views, but that's, one of the things where I'm actually for 100% reserve, or at least I'm very concerned about fractional reserve commercial banking because I do think it is true that in a sense they're creating money. I mean, it would be M1. Yeah, I mean, I, I
1: don't think it's um, about the
0: reserve ratio,
1: and I, I don't think I would limit it to commercial banks, even though they're a very obvious
0: one, because it, it, it goes all the way down to the bar tab. R- but right, yeah. so I, I'm just getting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, I, yeah. I, do, I'm, I understand what you're talking about, and I'm not even... So, so, anyway, so, so yeah, but, but,
1: okay. but, but here's an Austrian example, right? You, if you if you were looking at a full resource question, you're an MMT, You're an MMT. You're looking at full resource usage. You want to build a new school, right? And you're concerned that you're going to start hitting concrete labor shortages, etc. In the same city, there is a casino that's applying for a loan to build a new casino. A casino developer, right? Well, if you're a regulator. Now, maybe you don't want to give them this power for political reasons. Put that aside for a second. If you're a regulator and you have the choice between approving the government spending or, or approving the loan, then from a real resource point of view, there might be a genuine tension of which of those projects lay claim to those real resources. So if you're at a full employment, full resource barrier and you want to engage in more public spending, one thing to look at is what are the sources of private spending and are the, do they serve public purpose to the same degree? I might believe in some degree of private spending, but I might also think that we should have a mechanism for saying, if our concern is inflation-driven by real resources, that we should be able to make a triage decision at a public policy level between the next casino loan and the next public school we want to build. And until we have a language that can do that, that can say public spending is inflationary uh, if if it uses up more real resources than are available, but so is every private credit decision, then then we have to have a very different framework for managing inflation that can't just be, well, MMT
0: wants to give governments you know, free reign. <laughs> right. You want to give governments free reign and constrain private people.
1: <laughs> well, may, may, I, maybe I want to constrain both, right? Yeah. Maybe, but, but I'm but just laughing. What, lab, I, what, yeah, I, what yeah. I want yeah. is – yeah, no, I, I get, you know, I get yeah. your
0: point.
1: I, what I want is a framework uh, so that we uh, can make a decision about which one of those is best in any particular process because right now we just don't have a language for doing that.
0: Right. Okay, so th- what's what's funny here, the reason I'm kind of caught flat-footed is I thought a big portion of the MMT worldview was everyone, you got to stop thinking of the federal government or at least a monetary sovereign like a household or a corporation. And so I was taking those as the bit. Now it sounds like you're saying, no, even a lot of this stuff that we think of is the privilege of a fiat-issuing, fiat money-issuing fiat money central government actually is also true of the corporation. So it's...
1: Well, I wouldn't wouldn't say the same thing is true. You know, Hyman Minsky, I think, put it best. He said, anyone can create money. The challenge is to get it accepted. There are specific structural things unique to the government Mm -hmm. that make it very different from a a corporation. But corporations can issue an instrument that has monetary properties. It's just that those monetary properties are not going to be necessarily as good as as the monetary properties of a government-issued instrument. Now, from from a real resource usage, you know, purchasing power perspective, yeah, they they
0: could certainly have a real effect, but it just depends on what dimension you're looking at, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I, so again, just to finish, so like ten minutes ago, that's, I was trying to show the distinction and saying like, GE issuing more bonds is not doesn't have the same inflationary potential. as the Fed monetizing a coin? And I and I was sure you were going to be fine, and then you were stuck. like, well, no, because they're still issuing assets, and so. You know who knows? Yeah. Well, no. I mean, what 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 is what is corporate <laughs> leveraging? Like, I isn't mean, that it, important?
1: Yeah. No, I think it is important. But like, what is You're corporate right. deleveraging? I mean, this is what we people are saying in Japan. Japan, the government is trying to stimulate the economy, but there's high savings rate and low levels of corporate investment. You know, Richard Koo's whole balance sheet repair theory. You know, if if corporations are interested in stockpiling assets and not investing their funds, then that that hmm. is less stimulative than if they were investing those funds. And if they're investing those funds, it's the same process of creating financial assets and liabilities on both sides of balance sheet. Like The point that I was making with treasury debt is when the government issues treasury debt, that's held as an asset on people's balance sheets. Now, your point that you can't go to the grocery store and pay with treasury debt is true, but you can't go to the grocery store and pay with a bunch of financial assets that still affect the wealth distribution in the world, and the wealth distribution affects spending decisions. So a billionaire doesn't need to be able to spend every one of his billion dollars at the grocery store. He only needs to be able to spend $50 million of it at the grocery store, and the rest can be invested in
0: higher-yielding assets. Oh. oh, Okay, so but then
1: – And it's the same, it, with the same with the corporate So why, so if, why if is MMT
0: – but again, it's it's the MMT worldview though that's saying there's this huge qualitative difference between no, no, there is the there bonds. Is. so, but yet every time I try to rely on that to make some basic little point over here, it's like you don't even want to give me that. No, no, no. These <laughs> no, 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 no. bonds are the same thing as, as Federal Reserve notes. We're talking about Bob. No, I, but I did. I didn't say that,
1: Bob. Come on, <laughs> let's let's be let's be accurate here. I didn't say no, that. Right. Government bonds and. And corporate bonds can both Uh expand the amount of purchasing power in the economy and in that sense have an equivalent effect on inflationary pressures driven by real resource constraints. That's what I said. They are not the same instrument at all. Corporate bonds are not safe. That's a huge difference. Corporate bonds don't have the guarantee of a liquid market where you can convert it back into cash. Now, if you had a savings account at, at, at your local commercial bank, you know that you can transfer that back into your deposit account at any point in time. If there's a risk that you can't do that, that's a very different kind of savings deposit, like we saw with money market funds. Right. So, so, isn't that why? They're different. Again, I, I, except, I mean, they are right. different. But, the so, why, isn't that why? <laughs> no, no no, <laughs> they, no, no, he, no, no. But you asked me a specific question. You said those entities can't issue debt that would then have an effect on, on spending and purchasing power. They can. Just because those savings deposits aren't safe doesn't okay. mean they still don't increase purchasing power. They, okay. Right. Like, so just they, think would about they not that. have.
0: Right, would they not have – they would not have a, an effect remotely close to issuing Federal Reserve notes.
1: No, no, no. You okay no, with that? No, because you're talking about inflation, and, and, I, and I keep trying to point out that you can't understand those inflationary dynamics without understanding what the people are doing with those funds. If you created a bunch of Federal Reserve notes or Federal Reserve settlement balances or digital coins, and you gave them to a bunch of pensioners, and those pension funds sat in a savings account and weren't spent – then that could have very little effect on actual demand, right? Conversely, if you're a corporation and you take out a $60 billion loan uh, and you use those funds to you know, invest in the new Tennessee River Dam or something, that could have a huge effect on real resources. Now, that company, when it does that, that debt asset is held as an asset in the private sector. And as long as it's you – know, so, so that the entity that gave the corporation those funds – like, like with treasury debt, is still got an asset on their balance sheet. Now, it's not as safe, right? If you're a pension fund manager, you can't slot that corporate bond into the same safety categories you can slot treasury debt. But from an inflation point of view, the corporation is left with a billion dollars extra to spend. And the person who lent the corporation the money has an asset that that you know, risk-adjusted
0: is a billion dollars. And a but, billion dollars less in cash. They yes, but, the but, but they didn't.
1: But they don't. But again, the, the, whether whether that corporation was going to spend that billion dollars or invested in financial assets is a question that happens prior to this whole story. Like the corporation wasn't sitting there about to invest a billion dollars in milk, and then suddenly have the you know sorry the, the hedge fund wasn't about to invest a billion dollars in milk, and then suddenly saw an opportunity to buy a corporate bond and decided to switch from a milk strategy to a bond strategy. It was
0: never going to spend that on milk, so. Uh, Oh, hang on, though. Okay, so you're right. It's, you're, you're saying you can imagine, so yes, if the, if, the, if the government, like let's say it's a literal printing press, just keep, they print up a bunch of money and they hand it to people who just put it under their mattresses. I agree that doesn't tend to push up prices, except if we wonder the counterfactual, what would those people have done had they not gotten the money? You know, would they have gone and, and yeah. boarded... Extra money. Okay. Whereas you're saying, whereas a corporation issues bonds and then spends money like this, this on building a factory that pushes up wages in the community. But what I'm, what I'm trying to put my finger on is, is the issuing the bond, like a huge part of that is the corporation issuing the bonds is getting that, that cash from the community. It's not running a printing press. So that's not extra no, money that's no, getting it's, it's, spent it's, into it. It's
1: not necessarily getting that cash from the community, right? It, it, it's, it could be getting that cash through the banking system. It, 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 oh, what it oh, could oh, be doing is it could be issuing a corporate bond and then selling that corporate bond to the bank and the bank just expands its deposit side of the balance sheet. Oh, okay, or, fine. But, but even could, there, I would be, say,
0: right, so it's the bank creating extra money and again, I'm well, 100% it reserve kind of guy.
1: Well, no, but this is where I think you're, you're overly focused on commercial banks. Because a money market fund share could do the same thing as long as you're willing to store those funds. Like, so, so say the corporation, right, uh, instead of like, you know we were talking about getting money to buy to invest in a casino. Let's, let's do a different case example where you're talking about an entity that wants to become a speculator in cryptocurrencies, rather than building a casino. Well, that actor might get funds in the form of some other entity's cryptocurrency. As long as I can trade those funds, then, then it's fine. Like it, it doesn't have to be a bank deposit that gets created in that process for it to somehow gain liquidity or influence purchasing power. And 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 you know, if 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 the actor that was that, that holds this was not going to spend that money on anything up any real consumer goods, then then this is a net increase in spending. And I use those two examples as like. Polar opposites, just to elucidate the point, which is that you can't look at the funding source to understand the inflationary impact. You have to look at the spending act- activity to understand this inflationary impact.
0: The but funding source could just, affect the, the spending activity, but, but you doesn't have it doesn't to- matter. But doesn't there seem to be? So I, I get that what you're saying—that it's the spending to like gauge what's what's going to be the impact. But doesn't it matter if the funding source is on the one hand creating de novo? New units of whatever this thing is being spent versus grabbing it from the pre-existing stock that's already held by the community and just redeploying it? It, it How how is that not a big deal? Because it depends for what purposes the money
1: is being acquired for in the first place. Like what you're describing is like making payroll and buying milk, right? You're, You're talking about retail payments that would have to be settled in deposits. But a lot of the activity for which this credit might be created wouldn't necessarily be doing that in day one. And then the second, the second point of that is that the way that the financial system works right now is liquidating non-liquid assets. There's, there's there's whole money markets designed for that exact purpose. So maybe what you do is you get a repo collateral loan, right? So rather than, rather than getting someone else's cash forever, you get the cash temporarily by pledging the loan asset that you just purchased. And then you give the entity the cash, and then they spend the cash, and the cash – uh, you know, comes back around, or they get you know um, sales from as a result of the investment or something, and then they they repay the loan that way. So as long as you've got collateral that can be liquidated in the capital markets, then then from the capital markets point of view, you're you're kind of you know performing your side of the equation. They're there to provide liquidity against good assets, and they have a whole complicated structure that connects back up to the central banking system, but. You know, money market fund shares just issued their own liabilities, and plenty of large investors were quite happy holding money market fund shares as an alternative to deposits.
0: So, why aren't you on board with getting rid of the central bank and having the private sector do everything? I'm pretty sure you'd say because, there'd be a liquidity crisis, wouldn't yeah, you? No, no, no. I'd, I'd say that the
1: problem with that is that it doesn't make sense. It's not a coherent point of view because you still have a legal entity enforcing contracts and stuff. I mean, I wrote that response to you when you did the debate with Warren. Um, it was a long response, so I don't expect you to read it, but it was on New new Economic Perspectives where I kind of got to the point in that debate where you're like, look, I don't disagree with your description of the operations, but I just – you know, what, what if this isn't the world we want to have? But I, from my point of view as a lawyer – um, the entity that enforces the laws has to determine what unit of account and what instrument is acceptable to make payments in those in that legal system. And from, from what I remember you writing was, well what if we had a system where like everybody could choose their own courts and, and come to voluntary arrangements? I don't think that works and I, I kind of run a long explanation of why I don't think that that's coherent. but even if you think that's coherent, that's not the world that we have right now. but under the, under a system where you have a central government that enforces laws, if the court says you have to make a payment, the court is going to determine what kinds of things are acceptable payments and what aren't. And, and, and so any world of private credit would instantly have a hierarchy established by how close you are to that process. We saw that in, we saw that in the early 18th century, okay. uh, in, the, in the late 18th century and early 19th century. The, the state yes. banks were chartered to issue banknotes and the federal government accepted mm-hmm. those state banknotes in payment of taxes. And they didn't okay, accept but, it from my
0: banknotes, they accepted right. banknotes. Right. So here, I guess, b- believe me, I fully believe you're not trying to be difficult. I'm, I'm having difficulty though. Yeah, yeah, sure. Because we're going along and I'm trying to make what I thought was a basic point. And it sounded like you were saying, no, no, look, private sector, could they could issue all sorts of liquidity. And who, you know. Yeah,
1: they can. It's just, said, not, it's just right. not the same kind of liquidity as the state. And that's really- Right, important. and so,
0: but that's why I'm, like when I'm trying to make that point and say, yeah, there is this important difference between Federal Reserve notes and privately issued debt. And it seems like no, whoa, where are you talking about crazy no, no, talking no, no, no,
1: there's a bunch of important differences. I just disagree that one of those differences is there is its impact on inflation. That's all. There's a bunch of differences, a bunch of really, really important differences. But but mm-hmm. the difference is not that government spending is inflationary and private debt isn't.
0: Right. right and right? I would well, massively. But well, I would say wait, so I guess going back to was it Hyman Minsky that said everybody can issue their own money by just getting accepted? Yeah. Right, so to me that's that's the thing that right now the the dollar, you know, which I should be more clear or more specific that, you know, Federal Reserve notes and reserve balances and the you know the banking system are high powered you know money that's legal tender and then also in most applications stuff that's guaranteed by commercial banks like claims on actual base money are also treated at par in most applications and so that's why
1: yeah, deposits, deposits aren't claims on bank money. That's a misunderstanding. So um, just to clarify that, from a legal point of view, a deposit is a general contractual claim on the bank. Uh, the minute you hand over your funds, the bank owns those funds and it gives you a general obligation. You don't have any claim to any reserves.
0: Well, yeah, but the obligation denominated in what? Yeah, so oblig- I understand what you're saying. I misspoke, What yeah, it's no, denominated no, just, I just in— to yeah. It's an obligation right, right.
1: to convert at par. It's not a claim on funds. Yeah. Okay. It's important to me, not because I'm trying to get prove you wrong, but because a lot of the work that I'm doing right now in digital currency design, I want a system of digital currency, fiat currency, where you hold the funds that you own, more like a safety deposit box. And right. there was okay. actually a a, mm-hmm. a shift in deposit law in like the 11th and 12th centuries where they split. One was called bailment. And that's like when you put your...
0: R- you know, right. Jack- no, I know. That's this yeah, is the yeah. fractional reserve. So it's funny how it's not that you and I are very close in a lot of the Details. It's just we end up apparently, you know, saying things that seem like they're totally contradictory. That's what's well, So I, what I think
1: I think your point about the fractional reserve is is that you're you're applying like I think you've diagnosed the right problem, but not all of it, and then as a result, your solution isn't complete. That's just my take. And I'm not trying to tell okay. you, but like okay. my take is that you have decided that the, the the fractional reserve in the banking deposit process is is the like is the alchemic part of the credit system. My view is that's a special layer in part because it's right underneath the state, but it's only one layer. And because it's all these layers, a proper credit regulatory approach needs to understand all of those layers. And what the history of shadow banking suggests to me is mm-hmm. that when you regulate the, the the deposit layer, if you try to squeeze the credit there, it will emerge somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And to regulate that whole system properly requires being really careful not to just play whack-a-mole and then have it emerge somewhere right. else. And and the fractional reserve banking story makes it seem like the problem is that we gave them access to the Fed, and if we just sort of regulated those people, we'd have solved the problem. Whereas from my point of view, from the Minsky point of view, the problem is private credit itself has an unstable dynamic, and you need a theory of all of that. Now, you know that gets into contracts oh, and everything right. else.
0: So. Okay, great. So just let me – my general take on this stuff is – because, yeah, I, I have been trying to think through because I do like a lot of consulting and stuff for the life insurance sector. And there's, you know, things about like, well, gee, is the is the cash value, surrender value, you have in your whole life policy? Is that part of the money supply? Blah, 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 you know, and things yeah, like exactly. I was thinking that's through. A great, yeah, that's a great example. And, and yeah. it's just trivia for the Austrians listening that Rothbard used whole life cash surrender values for the money supply in, in his America's Great Depression. He used that like to calculate in the 20s and then later people didn't quibble. So anyway- So it is an interesting theoretical issue, and you're right. There is a sense in which, yeah, the bar owner giving you a tab, like, is there a you know that's certainly inflationary in the sense that that allows spending, allows you to economize on your cash balances. You as the bar patron, if if you know you have credit with the bartender, I I get get all that. But to me, so I in the past I've been thinking through like, okay, so what what is the important distinction? Why is it that Mises, when he did his you know theory of the business cycle? is talking about commercial banks issuing what he called fiduciary media where he's not talking about the bar owner giving a tab to people and i think the what the issue is is that in the community claims on money and they're not you know claims against the bank that are denominated in in the medium of exchange are accepted pretty freely whereas if i have a tab with the bartender I, the bartender is, you know, isn't going to, that's not marketable anywhere else. I can't go spend money at, at JCPenney because, and say, oh no, the bartender said I'm good for it. Yeah. So this is,
1: I think, yeah, I I get your point. And there's a really interesting story in a short article on this. I think one of the, you can find on JSTOR, uh, about when there was a banking holiday in Ireland in the the Mm late 1980s, maybe you've already heard of this, but the whole country or a significant fraction of the country switched to literally using their local bar as a bank, as a bank tab. Of like course, it was in Ireland. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but like everybody who was like having, <laughs> you know, well, my wages are coming in in two weeks. Okay, the bar writes that down, and someone else makes a payment. So the bar literally became the general purpose mm. clearing uh, mm-hmm, account mm-hmm. system for the, for the local community. Now, you know, that's an extreme example, but it, it right. sort of gets the point. And and I think your point about the monetary media, like one of the things that we're seeing now is a, a rise, first of all, of things like money market mutual fund deposit uh, shares, which function mm-hmm. like deposits, but sort of skirted deposit regulation. Right. Um, and part of that is because there is actually a very, like a big black hole in the regulatory system in the United States around what the definition of a deposit is. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you also have entities issuing mobile money, you know, airtime minutes, first of all, and now sort of things that almost look like Venmo balances, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're a Venmo entity, Right? or your PayPal, once upon a time, you're required to store all your funds in a bank uh, or in treasuries or safe assets. Right. right, That's a classic example of a safe asset requirement mm. that's independent of yield. Um, but they've kind of skirted a lot of that, and they invest in all kinds of instruments right now. But if you're Venmo, like, you don't need the underlying bank float to, to settle transactions between Venmo users, as long, as, right. you know, So the question to me becomes a question of sort of who has control over the payment system in large part. And for a lot of history, it was administratively very complex to run a decentralized payment system where every town had a local branch, et cetera, which was why when like the post office tried to do it, there was such political resistance from the banks because uh, the post office was actually a genuine potential contender because it actually did have the root and branch in kind of every local town. But mm-hmm. now that you have telecom companies and all these different actors that have the potential to offer you an app on your phone that can do a lot of this stuff, I think the reason why commercial banks for a lot of the you 18th, 19th, 20th centuries were the dominant thing that we thought of was to do with their position in the payment system uh, more than anything else. And people like Daniela Gabor, who've written really well on shallow, shadow money, her whole argument is that like there is a, a an endless push within capitalism, uh, an urge to uh, – m- to create assets and give them the appearance of more safety than they have. So mm-hmm. every actor who creates any liability on the money hierarchy, you know, on the Minsky hierarchy, is always trying to push up its acceptance, right? It's always right. trying to make its acceptance higher than it otherwise would be and give the appearance of more safety. So money market fund shares, they want to give people the impression they're as safe as deposits, right? Mm-hmm. And and if you're, a, if you're the local bar tab, you want to give the impression that like all your, you know, you're a Starbucks gift card. You want to give the impression right. that that's as, that's as safe as the next thing up in, in the hierarchy. And so I think that's where I, I see the like tendency here is that like banks are the kind of entities that have gotten to a level of, of recognition. But there's mm-hmm. always this push for the next form of shadow money or the next kind of credit that wants to walk and talk like it's safe.
0: Okay. All right. I, I do see that. So I guess – for me, like explaining things to someone who just is completely new, it makes sense to me to say, okay, you know, there's cash and then debt and notice they're not interchangeable in a corporation issuing bonds. It's got to get the money from somebody first and then spend. Whereas, geez, if the Fed comes in and monetizes it, notice now there's extra dollars. So I get that that's like a a six-year-old or sixth grade, let's say, explanation. And then you want to get more sophisticated and and would say there's a spectrum of moneyness on different assets Yeah, perhaps. I mean,
1: I, I'd say a corporation that wants to issue that debt wants to know how easy it can liquidate it. And as long as there's capital markets, it can probably liquidate it relatively easy or the investor that wants to buy that debt. Um, but what the Federal Reserve backstop does is, is turn that 95% into 100%. And that really matters. Like on a day-to-day basis, you might think 95% surety and 100% surety is pretty much the same. In a crisis moment, it really isn't. Or, or if you're a fiduciary with legal responsibilities, it really isn't. So the difference between issuing a mortgage where you have a pretty high likelihood it's going to be repaid, and issuing a mortgage that you know is going to be stamped and guaranteed by Fannie Mae is quite different.
0: Mm. But even so, I don't disagree with anything you just said. But even there, I'm concerned. Like when you say, "Oh, there's a capital markets or whatever," but I mean, if the ability to take your debt instrument and exchange it for cash, the total amount of cash that exists. Is important, and so yeah, on the margin it might. But I mean, if every corporation's issuing and they're all doing this to like the total number of dollars that exists. I'm, I'm not is sure. Important. I'm not
1: sure. Well, okay. So there's two things on that. One is, and I think this is maybe an area of agreement, is that mm-hmm. the Fed is backstopping the liquidity of the whole system. So like at some point, this is all going to trickle up to there. And if your point is that it's all connected to that, we're in agreement. Um, okay, yes. In part because of the nominal unit of account and the fact that you repay in a higher form of money than than you issue yourself, et cetera. On the other side of things, though, like the the fact that you can like issue a currency or issue a liability, the the existence of a capital market on the other side is not a question of like a a pot of money and you just need to get access to that pot of money. It's about sort of sharing that risk amongst a bunch of people. So to give an example, imagine there's a single dollar in the whole economy, right? Mm -hmm. One guy Mm -hmm. owns it. but They have an insane hypothecation lending structure Mm -hmm. set up so that like that dollar, like if you've got a billion dollars and you need to convert into liquidity, you know, you pledge your asset and you borrow that dollar like a billion times. Like you borrow a dollar, you give Mm -hmm. it to someone, he gives it back, you borrow it again. right. Mm -hmm. You only need that convertibility of your collateral into liquidity at a split second in the settlement process. And for the rest of the time, you can hold that collateral. Mm -hmm right? So right. you don't, you, it's not like the whole capital markets need a certain amount of, of of cash to settle. What they need is access to cash to settle. And that access could be very contingent. It could be very small on a daily basis, right up until a crisis when it's very large, right? Like mm-hmm. if, you, if, if you're not unwell, you don't go to the doctor very often kind of thing, right? right? right. If, if the vast majority of capital market activity is all offsetting each other and is mm-hmm. all netting, then the amount of actual gross liquidity you need for settlement might be extremely low. Um, And of course, the Federal Reserve is going to provide it at the end of the day. Um, And and that means that like what the capital markets get to do is sort of augment and magnify and leverage and all that kind of stuff. But in a crisis moment, they know that they can come running and convert it all over. And I think that's a bad thing, you know, in that respect, right. agreement. Like, I think it's, it's bad that a bunch of private actors engage in behavior that sounds like it's private, sounds like it's not a macroeconomically significant activity. And then when a crisis hits, it turns out it is. They get backstopped.
0: Everyone goes, how could we have known? And then we do the same thing next time. Right, so let me try this. So the, the real simple, again, like if we started talking to sixth graders and we want to teach them how stuff, you know, we'd be, yeah. so the f- first thing I said was, yeah, I mean, with corporation's issuing debt, that money has to come from somewhere. So keep in mind, kids, that's not creating dollar bills. The fact that they're issuing debts, those dollar bills had to previously be held by someone to buy the, the bonds. And, and then you come along and say, wait a minute, I'm gonna make it a little more complicated, folks. Um, or sorry, let me, and then I would also agree, and you would agree that now, if because there's a cash crunch, then people can complain and the Fed comes in and does helicopter drops of money, then that's then we say, ah, see, so this new money's coming from the Fed ultimately. But then your point is, I'm gonna make a complication here, Murphy, that actually, um, you even though a corporation might borrow a billion dollars over the course of a year, like they run a billion dollar deficit, as it were, it doesn't mean there needs to be a billion dollars. Cause they say like they're gonna be 10 million, let's say, and they keep borrowing it in 10 million bursts.
1: Every Every they, or, they, or they borrow or they borrow funds without the point of storing them as funds like i think you're you're conceiving of issuing debt as like debt for cash and i don't see it that way i see it like the way that minsky sees it he talks about the acceptance function it's someone issuing you an iou for your iou and right.
0: their iou is better <laughs> for some reason for well, some sure, reason but- to the extent that the corporation is going to like go build a factory, the workers and the people supplying lumber and stuff aren't accepting Bitcoin. Yeah, if but, they to, were, the extent, but then, to the extent that yeah. they're
1: not building a factory, right, or to the extent that they're investing or something else, right, you might you might not need cash at all. Like maybe that loan is going to take the form of, you know, you getting cash for a split second to buy securities, but actually you never even touch that cash because they just offset it with the securities dealer or something, you know? So that like there's yeah. a whole range of ways. Yeah, for, yeah, 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 for, Okay, you know, mm-hmm. or even bank deposits, right? Like what, what's going on there is a bank is giving you its IOU in exchange mm-hmm. for your IOU. And the difference mm-hmm. is its IOU is slightly more proximate to cash in a crisis.
0: Right. I'm, I'm okay with all that. Yeah. It,
1: but it's not, it's not that you're getting cash for your IOU. You're getting their IOU for your IOU. It's just that their IOU has a better degree of moneyness. So if you're thinking of, like, corporations issuing debt as corporations issue debt get cash, then the obvious next question is, well, where does the cash come from? If you're thinking of it as corporations issuing an IOU in exchange for another entity's IOU, that IOU may be cash, it may not be, and it may be cash for a second and end up as something else, then mm. you, the, the question isn't, this, you start with, isn't where did the cash come from? It's, like, what's the credit relationship that's been formed here and how does that affect the distribution of assets and wealth and liquidity in the system, and you know there is a there is a point where settlement has to happen and payments have to happen, as you know. Mm. So, right. but, but it isn't it isn't the way that I'd frame that whole transaction. It's only a very specific point of it. And the same with banking. You know, when, when banks lend issue deposits, they're not leveraging out their reserves. There's no fractioning of their reserves. They make a loan, and then at a point in time, if they need liquidity, then they get reserves. There are whole banking systems that have zero reserves in them at the end of every night. I'm sure you're familiar, Canada and others that, that that don't have a reserve requirement at all. So often those banks hold zero net reserves and yet they continue to make loans. And the reason is because they're not leveraging some pot of money. They're taking their IOU and giving it in exchange for mm-hmm. the borrower's IOU. And the difference is they know that their IOU is intimately connected to to the Fed when they need it to.
0: Or to the yeah, okay. And then, so I, I do agree with that. And then I guess you know you're you're then taking it back and say okay another level of realism yes that this you know there could be like leverage and IOUs and backing up things and it's like a small number of dollars per you know performing multiple jobs or something like that um, and then that could lead to a crisis when something breaks down when what like one person defaults in that whole sequence of IO.
1: I yeah, owe a bunch yeah, that's of m- right. dollars to this repo- guy, he owes a
0: bunch of dollars to guy. Yeah, repo chains can
1: break down. And, right, then exactly. like that's what happened
0: in the fall 2008, right? Yeah. that They were concerned about the counterparty, and then there was like a bunch of, we owe money to him, he owes money to him, and everything's fine as long as everybody can make the payment, and or, as long as no one's worried about the payment, even just yeah, entering and, entertaining the doubt. Wait a minute, I'm not sure this guy's, you know, the third person in the line here is actually good for it, and then everything can can— Exactly, and,
1: and and you see this. Uh, Annalise Riles, a law professor, anthropologist who spent some time at the Bank of mm. Japan, um, and and Perry Merling and others, they talk about this as like the the sort of legal fiction at the heart of collateral, because the the whole of those liquidity chains are based on mm. often pledging of collateral or a sale and repurchase agreement, and mm. and the fiction, the legal fiction there is that if you if the borrower defaults, you're left holding that collateral and you're made whole right? And, and and so the fiction is that you're not taking on any credit risk because you're just doing a purchase and, and resale agreement. And if that collapses, then you're left with an asset. So whatever. But of course, in practice, these actors that are providing liquidity don't want to be left on the hook with a bunch of other people's collateral, right? right that's right, the fiction, right. is that, they, that, mm. that they're that they acting as if holding an illiquid asset and a liquid asset is functionally the same on their balance sheet. And the system allows them to perform that fiction. But in yeah. practice, it doesn't work. And when that doesn't work, that's when the Fed has to mm. step
0: Okay. And so the last thing I would say there is knowing that the Fed is waiting there to step in when there's a liquidity crisis to be the lender of last resort. To me, that helps explain why the quote, private sector would get tied up into such knots and then need to be rescued.
1: Yeah. And, not- and, and I think we probably would agree on that. I think mm-hmm. we would just disagree on the political reasons why that dynamic comes to be. You know, my argument mm-hmm. would be these are powerful actors and powerful actors are going to do this kind of shit because they've accumulated private power and they're going to use that private power to corrode democracy. So if we want to prevent that from happening, we need a different structure. And, you know, you talk about sort of speaking to kids and how to explain this to a layperson. When I talk about the kind of Minsky dynamic of stability being destabilizing and, you know, financial regulatory regimes breeding their own destruction because, you know, it creates a new set of rules that financial actors try to arbitrage around and things for that endless Mm -hmm. pushing up process. So that endless process of kind of uh, issuing more credit or better liquidity than they're actually able to to guarantee, um, mm-hmm. that that it's like it's like kids who are underage who drink. If you try to like ban it entirely, then it, you end up with like a less well regulated system, um, or like you know criminalizing drugs. Right? You, you try to ban mm-hmm. it entirely, you end up losing any ability to regulate it because you you're not in the room and it goes underground or it like finds ways around things. Versus sort of. Like, okay, drink, but drink under my supervision at home kind of thing. You know, it's, it, it, it's not perfect. Maybe they're still going to go to the park occasionally or whatever, but it's at least a system where you have supervision and regulation control. So, like, I prefer to nationalize the whole banking system because I'm a lefty and I think that's a public utility. Mm-hmm. It should be provided as a public service. Mm-hmm. But even if you don't believe that, you know, certainly I would say that relative to the systemic risk of shadow banking, the risk of commercial banking is lower in my opinion. I don't. I don't. I, th- I still think it carries risk, but the mm-hmm. fact that it's it, it is subject to a regulatory regime and asset requirements and deposit insurance and things actually makes it as a form of private money better than a lot of these like completely unregulated things that will not stay risky. Like if they were just mutual funds and they were just offering shares and it was all risky mm-hmm. and things, then like you know all the logic about private sector assumption of risk and right pricing and things might apply. But in my view, that's not an actual accurate description of the history. The history is these actors aren't comfortable with just offering risky products and pricing them. They get power they get successful and big, and as part of that process, they try to strip themselves of risk.
0: Right. No, I, I agree with I, I don't agree with the nationalizing the banking system, but I, I get I'm shocked. <laughs> right now, yeah. Right now I think we have the worst of both worlds where it's these Firms are privately, you know, they they're in pro- yeah. profits. They get it to keep it and profit, then public. Public, yeah, if it, it blows up, and uh, and yes, that they, if you, if you're going to go ahead and have the bailout on the hook, they they should be regulated, I suppose. So that's yeah, okay. Are can we go 15 more minutes? Are you all right? Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 okay. Yeah, as, as long as yeah, want. my my butt is getting sore on this chair, but other than that, that's I'm, I still have some stamina left. Okay, because I let's just do big picture MMT. So I think we've given like the real nerds in the audience, a lot of red meat there with details and little, but big picture stuff. So sometimes, like I'm reading Stephanie Kelton's book, it sounds like the MMT people think they're the only ones who realize, no guys, we can just print money. And so the average is, yeah, we know that. And we're just saying, if something is, you know, like when we say, gee, how can we afford a green new deal? So us, you know, if you push it and say, "Well, we can just print dollar, like, that's shorthand for the resources, the real resources that would have to get channeled into the projects that the Green New Deal would require have more valuable uses elsewhere. And if the public understood that trade-off, they wouldn't be for it. And yes, under a gold standard, the way that would manifest itself is, you know, the, the government wouldn't be able to afford the taxes they'd have to raise or the amount they'd have to borrow and the interest rate that would happen. The public would not tolerate. And so therefore they couldn't, they would say, yep, this is unaffordable, but yes, with fiat money, you could print them up. But then that means the price inflation that would result would be intolerable to the public if they understood the trade-off. And I guess we would add as an afterthought, the reason they're doing it with in monetary and money printing, let's say, is riskier and less uh, transparent is it's harder for the public to understand what's going on when the reason their standard of living is lower is because prices are rising faster than their paycheck. Whereas if it's they look at their paycheck and it's because the government took out 10% because to fund the Green New Deal, then they know, oh, that's why I can't go buy a TV.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things there. One is, I, mm-hmm. I I mean, I don't, this is a side point, but I don't probably agree with your explanation of the gold standard there because in my understanding of that history, what normally happens is they don't restrict their spending. They issue debt and then they, they, use creative legal changes to the gold convertibility rate and other things, or they do creative accounting with managing their gold reserve until that becomes untenable and then they abandon it or they change it. They just do a kind of wholesale restructuring. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your story that like if we had a gold standard, then this this dynamic would provide a limiting factor. I haven't seen that dynamic actually provide that limiting factor in history. I've just seen it been another thing that gets worked around the minute it becomes politically annoying for the people in charge. So like what you're describing is an attempt to sort of have the congress tie its own shoelaces with its own laws and i just don't think that's usually how that, that functions um uh, especially because it's much easier to use creative legal accounting gimmicks to get around those things than it is for the public to go oh you violated that spirit you know i don't necessarily agree with the spirit of it but i do think that you're not probably going to um you're not probably going to have the public be able to be a watchdog on creative accounting to get around gold standard and hasn't worked in history But uh, to your question about Stephanie, I think, you know, there's an interesting, there's an interesting kind of bait and switch with that critique because on one hand it's like, of course we've known this all along, but then you actually read what people say and you read the public discourse and it's not what the public knows. Like maybe there's a bunch of economists who know this. And what they've mm-hmm. been comfortable with is telling a story that they know is not accurate, but the public thinks is accurate because they think it's easier than explaining a, a difficult truth to the public. But there is millions of people who think that we've run out of money and think that we literally don't have any more money and think that money printing is this sort of the minute you touch that button, the whole economy shuts down and fails. Mm-hmm. And you know the point that we were talking about before about the difference between bond issuance and coin issuance, Like maybe you have a political objection to giving governments a blank check. Fine, but that's different to believing that the minute you do money finance deficits versus bond finance deficits, you're suddenly going to collapse the economy. That latter thing is just not an accurate description under anybody's economic theory, even I would say most right-wingers, unless – unless I don't know. They have some particular theory about why why bonds are less inflationary than, than reserves that, that I haven't heard – but even under most of their own logic, it usually just reverts to we don't want to trust these people with this power. Well, fine, but you've got to admit that the way that you're you're achieving that is by deceiving the public. It's not about making it easier for them to understand something; it's about telling them a story that isn't true. When Obama said in 2009 we're out of money, he they weren't out of money, <laughs> but that that fit in a narrative that, that that treated money as scarce. And when you talk about like your point about opportunity costs, um, the problem with that is. If you start from that other story, the story I think is wrong, then you have to finance your spending dollar for dollar, not real resource for real resource. And so what that means is, for example, spending a trillion dollars, if you knew it was all going to go into savings accounts, could be offset with $10 of taxes, maybe, maybe none taxes, who knows? But we won't know those questions and we won't even be able to start asking those questions properly if we think that every dollar of spending has to be offset by a dollar of taxes. That's not how inflation works. that's not how spending dynamics work in the economy. So if the point is to properly constrain governments, we're not to, to prevent inflation, this is not a good framework for that. Like imagine if I taxed a billion dollars from from Bill Gates. And then I gave that to a billion – distributed in a way that a billion people bought milk. Under a sound budget rule, that's good fiscal responsibility. Now, from an inflation point of view, that could cause a massive increase in the price of milk. Do do you agree with that? Yes. Like I take away money from Bill Gates who'd be investing that in the stock market or something. I give that money to consumers. They buy milk, right? So if I'm looking at an inflation – prevention framework, right? My goal is not a single ounce of inflation. The minute there's inflation, you know, the commissariat comes and puts a gun to my head and I'm, I'm outside against the wall, right? If if I'm desperately needing to avoid inflation, I can't sit there and see a bill pass my desk that says, oh, we're going to offset a billion dollars of milk spending with a billion dollars of taxes from, from a rich guy who was never going to spend it on milk. That's not, that doesn't make sense from an inflation management point of view. I don't know if you agree, but tell me if you don't, because I think that's a real thing. Like from my point of view, I'm not as much of an inflation hawk as maybe some right-wingers are. Right. But even if you are an inflation hawk, surely what you actually want to do then is prevent inflation. And, and, and a system that only looks at the dollar values without looking at actually the real resource implications of the spending that's implied by those dollar values doesn't work. A balanced budget could be incredibly inflationary. If, if you spend, if you take money from people who aren't going to spend it and give it to people who are going to spend it at full resource usage, you, you haven't baked into that framework an actual inflation prevention mechanism. Okay, well, let's me, let create me, a proxy <clears throat> and then convince yourself that that proxy does all the work, but it doesn't.
0: Okay, so I understand the conceptual point you're making. Let me just say a little bit more about how I would analyze that situation because it's, I said yes because technically my answer is yes, but I think I'm not nearly agreeing with you nearly as much as perhaps, you know, the listener might have thought. So the way I would do it is w- w- when you say take a billion dollars from Bill Gates. And then people are going to spend it on milk. Like t- to me, I'm picturing like he actually had a billion dollars in a checking account or something. Like it's not – Yeah, treasury bonds. His- treasury bonds, fine. Yeah. Well, well <laughs> no, but even that. remember like I'm this old school guy that thinks debt and cash are different things and I – No, no, but sure, sure. But like- you think debt and
1: cash are different things. But like an actor
0: that's holding a billion dollars in debt could convert that into cash at any point in time, right? Surely you agree with that. But, but, but then that changes my answer. When you said takes a billion from Bill Gates and gives it to people to go buy milk with, I was picturing if Bill Gates happened to have a billion dollars in cash in his basement like Scrooge McDuck. Yeah, okay, cash or liquid, liquid assets. Cash or liquid assets. But then that changes my answer. Because if you if it's he sells his shares of stock to get a billion dollars to then pay the, the tax man, then my answer is probably not going to have a big effect on milk because now that money, the cash came from the community at large, like the people... Buying an extra couple of shares of Microsoft. Uh, well, no, what, but what, IBM. What, what if what if what he does is or, he sells? What is he? What is he, what is he he's Microsoft. What if he, he just it. sells
1: Treasury securities and then the Fed buys up those Treasury securities? Like say say, say we're at a point I, I, like we discussed before. There's a the, the Fed has balanced the rel, the level of reserves and Treasuries right. out there. It's, it's it's got its sweet spot. It's at its policy rate. Mm-hmm. It's like humming along the groove really nicely. Right. And then Bill Gates goes, okay, I'm going to sell a, a billion dollars of Treasury securities. That's messed up that groove, right? The Fed is going to intervene, all else equal, and buy mm-hmm. up those treasury bonds. Yeah?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, but, 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 but. Yeah, I think, I'm, I'm trying to think through, is there some other thing that I'm forgetting in terms of like- Yeah, yeah, I'm, not, try- I'm not trying to trick you. But, I'm, no, 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 I know you're not. I'm just saying before. So yes, and I guess I would say, yeah, right, and that's why the Fed creating more money pushes up prices, in this case, milk. Because effectively, the Fed's monetizing- Given the, the money that the people but, go but, buy but, milk.
1: Okay, okay, but remember, what I'm talking about here is a situation where Bill Gates could have done this at any point in time. Yeah. So before before the tax gets imposed, Bill Gates is holding a billion dollars that at any point in time he can convert into cash. And the minute he converts into cash at any point in time, then the Fed is going to have to sterilize that with defensive operations.
0: Well, it's not sterilizing it, right? Well, it's, it doing it's just doing, it's
1: just doing defensive. Op- sorry, sorry. I, I meant sterilize the action. You know, I just meant like offset. Mm. Yes, yes. He's not going to sterilize. It's going to do the it's opposite. infecting.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: <laughs> if if well, yeah, that's right. It's 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 unsterilized. Yeah, that's right. It's it's liquidating. So so at any point in time, Bill Gates is sitting there going, "I've got this billion dollars sitting in this instrument that if I wanted to convert into cash, I can." Right? It's sitting there in the equivalent of a savings account. Do do you agree with that? Okay. And so from the Fed's point of view, any inflation risk is already baked in at that point because the Fed is already committed to convert that into cash. Like from the Fed's point of view, it's not sitting there going, oh, it's 4.15, only like, you know, a certain fraction of bonds have been sold today. You know, we're at a good level of inflation. They look out there and they go, "Okay, we have to we have this interest rate and we're going to have to do as many purchases to defend that interest rate. So if Bill Gates wants to sell a bunch of bonds, we're going to we're going to buy them as part of our general buying process.
0: Yeah, it's just it is funny how we keep focusing, because the point of your story originally was to show me that even if we did have a balanced budget rule, that could that doesn't necessarily. Yeah, because your your story was
1: your story was the funds that would go to Bill Gates to liquidate any assets that he had would come from consumers who otherwise might have been buying milk. Or otherwise, we might have been something. Else. So, like in right. your story, the final source of money is like a retail consumer who's affecting retail prices. And I'm, I'm contesting mm-hmm. that story. I don't think that's true. I don't think that the final source of the money in in this story is retail consumers. I don't think that's where the money comes from. So the the, the idea that like if 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 Bill Gates had to pay a billion dollars in capital gains tax, the way, that would result like say the government wasn't going to spend it on milk, right? Say the government hadn't decided what it's going to spend it mm. on yet. If they took that billion dollars out, I don't
0: think that would have a billion-dollar depressive effect on consumer spending. Well, hey, let me just clarify something. It wasn't that I thought it was going to come out of pockets and so total milk expenditures would be the same. It was that I was going to say, to the extent that the, the billion dollars came from the public, total consumer spending might be somewhat lower and so prices in general wouldn't go. So yes, milk prices would be higher, but other prices, even in the CPI basket, would be lower. And so I wouldn't expect The CPI to go up as much as if the Fed printed.
1: Where's the transmission mechanism to the CPI from there? I'm 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 genuinely curious because like if I'm if I'm a financial investor and I have a bunch of dollars that you know just came in from a pension plan, right? And I have to invest them, and I'm looking around what to invest them in. If I choose between a U.S. Treasury and a Japanese government bond. Uh, the question of which one of those I invest in has absolutely nothing to do with the pri- with with consumer spending. I'm an investor; those are going into financial assets. Now, if Bill Gates wants to sell bonds to me and offered me a good rate for them, and so I buy those bonds from him, then the alternative was for that to go somewhere else in the financial system, not to be spent in any in anything that would affect consumer prices. Um, like, I I don't I don't see the link that that every dollar you take out of the economy has an equivalent ap- impact on consumer prices. And if it doesn't, then there is, a, there is an imbalance there. Like, what you're doing is you're saying, yes, it's not the price of milk, but it's a general CPI index that would be affected. But I, I don't think every dollar affects the CPI index equally. Yeah.
0: I mean, again, I, I think partly we're arguing about like tendencies or other things equal versus is it literally dollar for dollar? Um... Right, but well, this, is the, this is the point that
1: I was trying to get with my with my example mm-hmm. is that if it isn't dollar for dollar, then it has to be something else. And this framework that treats it if it's dollar for dollar doesn't help you understand what that something else is. Like uh, uh, people go, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna put a financial transactions tax, and that way we're gonna pay for Medicare for all. Well, if, if Medicare for all requires a big investment in healthcare provisioning and healthcare workers, then slowing down financial transactions between high speed traders isn't going to affect the real resource capacity on the other side versus if we had a tax that, you know, disemployed people from other industries, from people who might be able to transition into that industry, that could have a very different effect. So if someone came to me and said, what's the inflationary effect of Medicare for all offset by an equivalent amount of dollars of taxes, the only honest answer I could provide is I can't tell you. I can't tell you based on the amount of information you've given me, because the amount of information you given me doesn't let me know. I can't look at something and say, oh, it's offset dollar for dollar. Okay, that's inflation responsible. That information has to come from some other part of the equation, some other data.
0: Uh, I guess, what if we tried this way? I'm saying if they print a trillion dollars and just hand it out to people, that will make consumer prices higher than would otherwise be the case. And I think you're saying, no, we don't know that. We don't know that. No, no. If, the, if, that, if that
1: money was invested in a way that generated a new productive output that was more efficient, uh, per dollar than the existing productive output, then that might not be true at all.
0: Okay, so for that to be the case, you're saying because th- we would, if they created a trillion dollars and handed it out when we weren't yet at our at full employment, do you, do you like that term, or do you think that's not the right term?
1: Yeah, full resource capacity. I mean, employment is part okay. of it, but I think there are other resources that matter as well. But yeah, and and I mean, the flip side of that, of course, is like. it it, it doesn't even have to be that money being spent on something new. You know, if you have a highly indebted population and, Mm -hmm. and a lot of them are on the verge of a debt default, you know, you're, you're potentially going to enter a deflationary spiral. Now, maybe as an Austrian, your preference is liquidate them all, you know, Hoover style. That's not my preference. But uh, if, if you're, if that isn't your preference and you want to, you want to protect them, then issuing, issuing a trillion dollars into the economy might be the kind of thing that repairs those balance sheets. The creditors get made whole, and the the consumers don't have to default and and you know suffer the real re- the costs of that now the implicit effect of that is of course, the federal government or the spending entity has has assumed the risk of all those private debts that it's effectively backing up right so that's that's a political thing to consider, but economically speaking, may, maybe you would have had you know a recession and 15 percent unemployment without that without that money.
0: okay Le- last question for you or a topic so i guess I, I'm, I'm trying to isolate you so you said a, a while ago that no the public bob really does think you know we ran out of money or something and you know you economists might know but yeah. they, you know the, they, the public they don't. either
1: think we've run out of money or they think that the the idea of money financing is so catastrophically different from every other form of government spending that we can't mm. even consider it so my, my point is that like if – when people say, oh, government bonds and government money, like roughly equally inflationary impact, yeah, we knew that all the time. Oh, at the same interest rate, treasury bonds and, and reserves, the substitutes, yeah, we knew that all the time. Well, ask the average person whether they know that the national debt is equivalent to the national savings. They don't. They don't talk about it like that. They don't think about
0: it like that. Okay, but I, but I disagree with those claims.
1: Well, so, there you are. So, when so I then, say then we, what we, MMT yeah. is saying about that point <laughs> isn't. Obviously, known. Like, if your right. point is that MMT can print money, but in your head printing money is somehow qualitatively different from printing debt, then then what you're saying and what MMT is saying is not the same thing. When MMT says we, said we can always print money, its point is not we can always do this monetized debt thing. It's that we are always printing money right now. Every deficit is printing money. Okay, so – and if you disagree with that, then what MMT is saying is not obvious. Maybe it's something that isn't true. Maybe you don't like it or maybe whatever, but okay. it's, not, it's, it's not obvious. Well, because, here's
0: what I thought was, uh, yeah. So the things that I think that Kelton says, and it sounds like you're endorsing, that I disagree with are statements like debt is money, Yeah, money government is, debt is the same as money, period, except um, with my point about if the Fed monetizes the, the debt, and you're saying, no, that, that's not i I'm, I'm saying government thing. debt is a form of money. Okay. And
1: I'm saying that the differences between government debt, between Treasury securities and Federal Reserve notes is not a metaphysical difference between debt and money. It's a difference of properties attached to an instrument, like Mr. Potato Head. Like one has a mustache and one has glasses and one has a hat, you know, and the other doesn't. But they're both Mr. Potato Head and you can take and and remove those properties at will. A Mm. Federal Reserve note is a promissory note. It's literally a legal obligation. That's, that's literally what it is like it, it is a debt by definition it's it's the legal form of it is a debt and you know you can make it pay interest you can make it not pay interest I can't put a hundred dollar bill into a vending machine I can't buy a car with quarters I can't invest in the stock market with physical notes like when it comes to payment system functions they all have different yeah function
0: no i yeah um okay uh the or the mmt claim that like the government deficit is the flip side of private sector net saving. There's a the sense in which that's deployed, I think I have some disagreement. But the thing that MNT says, where I'm in definite agreement with and, the, and where I would say, don't you think we've known that is to say, look at there's there's no constraint. Like, can we fund the Green New Deal? Yeah, the issue might be too much price inflation than yeah. the public likes. Yeah. But clearly we're not going to run out of dollars. We can just create more dollars. So I'm saying that is the thing that I'm saying everybody knows that. But, but okay, but then I'm so this is why I I, I use the example mm-hmm. of the
1: tax offsetting policy because everyone says right. everyone knows that. But then when the com- time comes to do policy, and this is not just a right wingers, I deal with this with right. center leftists all the right. time. When the time right. comes to do policy, every can policy- stand those guys. <laughs> <Again>. <laughs> every time they design a bill, the bill mm-hmm. is designed in this very nominal very formal, very shallow surface level way. So if we can spend for the Green New Deal and the only limit is inflation, then the question is what causes inflation and how do we prevent that? And our argument is sound finance rules, reflexive rules that only look at the dollar amounts and not where they go and what they are for are not helpful for that process and they're actively counterproductive. And if you understood the MMT point about that, you wouldn't use those tools because you would understand how Mm -hmm. counterproductive they are. And so, like, I would not go, oh, uh, some, uh, Bob Murphy has done a really great job. He's come up with a balanced budget Green New Deal. Well, I can sign off on that without even reading it because it must be inflation neutral because it's a balanced budget management. Or I am committed to inflation, uh, opposing anything that's going to be inflationary. Someone's come to me with a, with a Green New Deal that isn't balanced budget. It's trillions of dollars deficit. I can't approve that without even looking at it because I know the fact that it's got trillions of deficits means it must be unaffordable. It must be inflationary. Those two sentences you couldn't say from an MMT point of view. But I think a lot of the average public can say it today. So I I don't find it convincing to say that MMT says nothing new because every public policy discourse argument, when they say how do you pay for it, they don't do inflation analysis. They do
0: offset analysis. No, 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 no. I get what you're saying. Okay, so follow-up is – and I asked this of Warren Mosler too. So why, to the extent that you're right, they, they do think about it in a little bit wrong way. And so somebody like me would say, okay, yes, but that's a proxy for the real resource constraints. And so for you to say, it sounds to me like you're saying, no, this is a very important difference or distinction we're making. Yeah, I'm saying if you <clears> think it, it's a
1: proxy, make the argument for it being a proxy. For, well, but that's the, what public, I mean. so, the public doesn't know it's a proxy. And the public doesn't understand the slip between the cup and the lip. Like you might think it's a proxy because, and I don't, I'm, you know, maybe this is not the case. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth to to, to characterize right. you, but you might decide that. The only way to sort of put a political limit is to have something so hard and formal that it that it forces these conversations and the minute you start to get into subjective judgments, it's going to be subject to abuse and whatever so that even if this is an imperfect proxy, it's still uh, practically a better proxy than others right Maybe you can make that argument. I strongly disagree with that, but that's not the way that the average person understands that problem. They think we're borrowing from China. They think we're borrowing money we can't afford. They think a deficit mm-hmm. is evidence that you're doing something wrong not evidence that you have exposed yourself to the risk of being licentious
0: okay so let me and i get all that for this to be a, a pretty big deal and like no it's worth you know shifting yeah. the conversation and the terminology we use are you saying like suppose we agree maybe you wouldn't but they're like oh yeah using conventional using you know thinking like a corporation or a household we can't afford the green new deal the taxes we would have to raise the public wouldn't go for it the amount of extra debt we would have to issue, the public would be scared and maybe, you know, yields on treasuries would get too high and then, you know, servicing the existing debt would get too unwieldy and blah, blah, blah. And so uh, if that's the only options, we can't do, green new deals are unaffordable, but then you guys come along and say, ah, wait, let's issue a $50 trillion platinum coin. Now we can afford it. And I'm saying for that to work, like how much in Slack, uh, how much... Of real resources are we leaving on the table every year? In your mind, that if only oh, okay, we changed our terminology. So I'll give you an example. World War Two mm-hmm. unemployment got down to one point two percent, and we mm-hmm. roughly
1: doubled real output in six years. Um, you're welcome to question the statistics if you disagree with me. That's my understanding is relatively uncontroversial. You know there were points where growth was over twenty percent nominal, even with ten percent inflation. We're still talking ten percent um, real growth there, and. Uh, you know, there were periods of Australian history that I know of from my background where unemployment, again, under 1.5% continuously. So w- what's the lowest unemployment rate, even even headline unemployment rate? That's before you get to underreporting. What's the lowest headline unemployment rate we've had in the last 30 years? What, 3.2? You know, Something like that, yeah. All
0: right. So under that hero of the worker,
1: Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, exactly. <laughs> the the, work is, the working man's president. So, So what's 2% of the labor force in terms of real labor? You know, millions of people billions of labor hours and of course the the broader point that the mnt argument makes is if you're investing not with an austerity mindset but a public investment mindset there are a lot of returns to scale like right now a lot of public spending that we invest in for example is for prisons and for you know dealing with the consequences of bad investment somewhere else or something you know we we, we underfund things and then pay for the other side of things so we, get, we, we give people lap mm-hmm. band surgeries but don't deal with public nutrition or something you know so that kind of thing, like we, we can't even just look at the dollars that we're spending right now. It's, it's a question of a full employment economy doesn't function the way that it does right now. And that has implications for sort of capital labor substitution and efficiency and all these other productivity rates and things. Um, but I think to your point, this isn't a, a sort of thing of like it would be politically unpalatable, unpalatable so that we've sold this other thing to make it politically palatable. The way that I would frame it is the way that it's currently being shut down is based on a misunderstanding, and that misunderstanding is illegitimate. And so it's not that like we're trying to sneak something in, it's that the current reason, to say that the Green New Deal is too expensive right now, well, I guarantee you that those people have not done an inflation-adjusted analysis of that. They're not talking about that, they're just talking about dollar amounts. And I don't think that's an accurate way to, to do that analysis. And, and what MMT's big point is, if you're worried about inflation, okay, Let's deal with that properly. And there's a whole range of tools that we can do. But even before we get to a whole range of tools that we do, we actually have to know whether what we're talking about is likely to be inflationary or not. Well, like how many dollars in that Green New Deal number? Say, say the number is 50 trillion. I think that's not the case, but say it's 50 trillion. How many dollars in that might actually increase net productive output? It's not it's not zero. Maybe you think it's zero if you're an Austrian, but like it's not like from, from the point of view of the center leftist who might be making this argument, it's not zero, right? But they're not, they're not discounting. Yeah. But they're not discounting that 50 trillion by that number. They're not going, okay, of the 50 trillion, well, 30 trillion is just going to increase productive output. So we can just pay for it pays for itself. Then we need to deal with the stuff that's inflationary. Well, okay, some of this could be managed by, you know, increased mandatory savings. And so we could offset that. They're not doing that. They're not coming up with a kind of inflationary risk profile. They're just saying that's a large amount of money and therefore we can't afford it. Like, that's not, that's not analysis. That's just knee-jerk reaction. And MMT's point of view is, yeah, look, we're not going to promise a Green New Deal more than we can afford. But what we're telling you is, when
0: they say what is affordable, that metric is wrong. Let me, last thing, I promise. So I yeah, gotta get, the, yeah. let me, because yeah. right now, at this point, I can't even feel my, my butt cheeks. <laughs> like they've gone numb now from sitting this long. Um, so we're looking at a private sector economy and they have accountants and stuff and somebody from Mars comes along and Mars and he's looking and he's saying I don't understand why why do you have all these people employed that they're called accountants and they do profit and loss statements every year I don't get like if 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 if, if it makes sense to build a factory like shouldn't you just look around and see is there enough is there lumber lying around or whatever or run the calculation and say If we build a new factory, then we're going to draw steel and rubber and glass from these other things. So there'll be fewer houses and fewer cars and one more factory. Is that a good thing or not that we want to do? Why don't you guys do that? And then somebody from Earth, maybe who has read the work of Mises, would say, because we can't do such calculations, like it's too hard to centrally plan the whole economy. So instead, we decentralize and we use money and private property and prices and accounting is a proxy for these other things. So you're right, in a medical, physical sense to say the corporation can't afford to do it, who cares? They could just send guys with guns to go steal the lumber, for example, or whatever. Um, or we could just you know, give everybody a printing press. Every, you know, every company could just get a printing press. And the reason we don't do that, though, is because then it, it would get out of hand, right? The, there oh, needs I to be some method exactly of, of constraining do. it. That's exactly what we right. do do.
1: Companies did have company towns. They did have private security forces that would come and beat people up and drag them back to work at the company town until government stepped in and stopped the practice. And and over the last decade, we have seen a bunch of companies issue their own currency, like J.P. Morgan Coin exists. So like I I think I think on that as a descriptive matter, that's you're describing what actually has existed and continues to exist. I mean, certainly if you if you're in the Brazilian rainforest, your experience of the corporations that manage you there is not dissimilar from a police force um and if you're in an amazon town increasingly now or if you're in you know uh, what's something call it in china the the apple factory um so I, I i i don't think that what you're describing is so different and when it came to world war ii for example that analysis that you're describing is exactly what we did for the public authorities we were doing real resource analysis we were doing steel okay. analysis and we doubled real output in six years and one and, okay, and, so and beat the nazis
0: like it, I'll, I'll come it's not to- the worst track record I'll come back to that in a second. But are you okay, though? That Do, do you agree that we do still need accounting for corporations and households? The, the spouses yeah, do no, need to sit down I, and I, do a
1: budget? I am not an anti-money leftist. What I, I, what I do think, though, is that your description of why money is useful isn't, isn't accurate in the sense that I don't think those prices exist external to the public policymaking apparatus. So one of the problems is, like, you can create a bunch of rules under which... Football players can earn football points, but it is a category error to think that those rules constrain FIFA. And and FIFA is the entity that comes up with those rules that players then use. But you can't do FIFA's accounting with the rules about how soccer players can score points in a game. And and that's the that's what I think the understanding of MMT is like a public sovereign does is it takes you into a different category of analysis. You're the game designer. You're the dungeon master. You're not the dungeon player. And and you have very different constraints as a result of that. So I, I, I'm not sure that trying to mimic corporate accounting practices is the best way to understand what's going on in the federal government, because you end up with stupid accounting games like we saw with the coin and the debt ceiling, like we saw. And of course, even with the debt ceiling before the coin came around, what actually happened is the Treasury Secretary just broke the law in the past, which we haven't talked about really. But like, I don't think if the Treasury Secretary had an option between breaking the debt ceiling or just making up a new instrument or not spending the way it's supposed to, it really should do the former because the spending obligations that Congress passes are primal. They're they're the, they're the first order legal obligations. But like, even in the 80s, when the Treasury Secretary was facing one of the first big debt ceiling crises, he raided the Social Security Trust Fund. And the GAO did an audit afterwards and said, that was probably illegal But given the extraordinary circumstances, it was understandable. And the world just kept on spinning. like like He he found funds somewhere else Mm. rather than having a default. So all these accounting games within the government are a joke. Now, is there a role for money and a monetary system that quantifies prices? Yeah, I think the Soviets even realized that. They tried to abolish money and realized pretty quickly that they just created an internal monetary system. The difference between you and I is, I think, we have to take public responsibility for how we form those prices. Everything from contract law, common law, where the courts impose liabilities, you know, torts and things, that's a form of judicial pricing that just exists as a matter of fiat by the court system. Every administrative law in antitrust, um, you know, if, if the if the DOJ approves a merger between AT&T and Sprint, that's going to have an effect on prices. If it doesn't, that's going to have an effect on prices. Like, so you, you can't understand prices as this thing that happens out there in the market. The government creates the pricing system and it can create one that's useful or one that isn't useful. But that's different from trying to apply that logic to the government itself.
0: Okay, at this point, I don't even know how you'd answer this, so I'm going to ask. Suppose someone reads Stephanie Kelton's book and the subtitle is, I got it right here. Birth of a People's Economy? (laughs) Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. And they've just heard you talk about, you know, silly accounting games for the government. What if somebody says, Rowan, why don't we just have each individual or each household perhaps get an account with the Federal Reserve, and everybody can just spend whatever they want? And then because you know there's no real, you know, it's not that we don't have enough money that we that, that I as a household run if if the Fed backstops me. And then yeah, if, imp- if inflation gets out of hand, you know, we had to have some rules in place to constrain that. But if you talk about the people's economy and power to the people and whatever. Wh- why why reserve this? these benefits of seniorage and whatnot to the to the people connected you know, to the federal contracts and whatnot, why not just truly have a people's economy? We could all spend what we want. And yeah, if inflation gets out of hand, then we got to regroup and let's come up with some rules of thumb. But wh- why does accounting apply to everybody except the federal government?
1: Um, I, I think the point here is that the accounting doesn't apply to everybody except the federal government in all situations. And what you're describing is exactly what we actually do. It's just that we don't always do that with money because it's not the best way to do it. I mean, if you listen to certain right-wingers in in the Republican Party in Congress, what they want to do is replace public schooling with school vouchers. I mean, that's exactly what you're talking about. Everybody just gets some money and they can go and buy their education on the market. And instead of having uh, public housing, you have housing vouchers. So everyone just gets some federal money and then they go buy their housing on the housing market. So what you're describing is a kind of consumer
0: model of the welfare state. Um, and I don't think that's the best way to provide a lot of public goods. Wait, just, just to clarify, though, no, I'm saying people go spend whatever they want and the Fed just creates the money to cover it. Yeah, So yeah, the but, difference okay, with the well, vouchers so there's, there's is they parts, give a but, limited number of vouchers.
1: Yeah, they, they, they get a limited number of vouchers because what you've described immediately runs into the question of where do we put those limits and why. And the, MMT doesn't say there's no limits. But like what, what MMT would say in that situation is that What's the public purpose of giving everybody unlimited amounts of money? If there's, for example, certain collective goods that we need to provide that are not going to be able to be provided as a result of individual decisions, you know, you've got half a national Mm -hmm. park in Wyoming. You and I aren't going to be able to go and do whatever we want on that national park. We want to do something to those national lands. We're going to have to have a conversation as a collective entity and do that through a budget process. So there's already a, a, a uh, a tension between sort of individual collectivized preferences and collective expression of group preferences that, that you've elided. But the second point there is, well, one of the reasons MNC MMC says there's value to currency is because you need it to pay for things. And you have obligations that are satisfied in money. So if you can issue the own instrument that you satisfy those obligations, then you're not subject to the rule of law in the same way. So having having some way to impose obligations on people that, and, and then put and then determine the conditions under which they get that instrument is an important part of governmentality. Now, I don't particularly like having you know a very authoritative state and my view is that the best way to reduce that is to do is to have a system in which people are guaranteed basic rights better in most cases better provided outside of the, the monetary nexus in my opinion. I prefer public schools over school vouchers. Um, but I have also proposed for example giving everyone uh, a, a credit every year. Uh, an artistic investment voucher that they can use to spend on cultural investment as a democratic voice to go with public arts investment so that there is something mm-hmm. decentralized. And one of the things I proposed with that was that those funds would then have to be spent on uh, art produced under a creative commons license. So if it's public money, okay. it has to go mm-hmm. into a commons, right? I've, I propose mm-hmm. a similar thing with voting. You get a voting voucher. You can give that to a campaigners, but any entity that receives that can't receive any private funds. All right. Okay. Now maybe you disagree with that, but my point is like these are examples of decentralizing investment down to the individual level and there's also examples of participatory budgeting movements that we have done events with and support where where you know there's a there's a ballot but instead of people you are voting for you are voting for projects with price tags attached to them and and you know you can sort of express your vote on where you want the budget to go. I think the the question then becomes well is there any use in having any private you know spending capacity or anything that isn't going through that process yeah maybe there is maybe it's good to have some level of private decentralized economic activity to prevent totalitarianism good fine that's that's good to have money but the reason why everybody doesn't get a blank check is because the whole point is to create a set of rules under which people want to accumulate money and will do real things in exchange for it mm-hmm. and okay and and that's not that's not undermined by mmt mmt just changes the conditions of those rules a little bit like if you right. if you, and, and by the way
0: yeah, yeah. Just for any MMT people who listen to that and then like roll their eyes, like, "Oh my God, Murphy thinks MMT thinks everyone should get a print." My point wasn't that. My point was I no, wanted no, no. to hear you're, how you're you respond to work
1: out where yeah. the line was. You know, I understand. And I'm just saying that
0: like it was interesting to me because what you said was something like, "Well, no, because there needs to be a rule of law." So it, it, again, it does sound like you're saying the rule of law applying to everybody except the government itself, which gets to issue the money. No, no,
1: I, 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 I don't think I don't think this is a question of the rule of law not applying to government. I think this is a question of applying different rules to different actors like this is like sort of saying like um if somebody says it's different when you're a parent to when you're a kid like if you're in a household living together if you're a parent you have different legal responsibilities and if you're a kid well why don't we just make everyone in the house parents like no like there's a reason structurally why that relationship exists Mm -hmm. that way now there's a difference between a government that is tasked with being the sovereign representative of collective action. And individuals, they have a different function. Now, the rule of law should apply to the government. I don't want the government to read my f-ing mail or, you know, to, mm-hmm. to put people in jail without due process or to deprive people of basic economic you know, sustenance because they're not a property owner or something. So mm-hmm. I, I, there's a lot of things that I, I want to put legal constraints on the government. And one of the things, the first talk I ever gave at an MMT conference was called, um, is money a creature of the state or a creature of law? And MMTers who are economists often conflate the two because they sound like the same thing. Oh, the state's the creator of law. And, and there wasn't shade on my MMT colleagues. It was just that you know I'm a lawyer. I want to bring a bit of nuance to that point. And my argument was there's actually quite a different politics when you frame money as just a creature of the state versus a creature of law. Because law is something that private actors – and non-state actors actually can have a claim over. Even as it's manifested, like majority of law today is refracted through state institutions or has some relationship to state institutions. Kind of like Cain saying, you know, modern money is the authority of the state for 4,000 years. You know, since we've had centralized states with legal institutions and things, most law has gone through the state. But, you know, MLK MLK said uh, justice is what love looks like in public. And, and. When you have a system where an individual can say, hey, the law isn't behaving the way that the law should, then then the law is as much something an individual can use against the state as it is the state can use on the individual. I'm not the kind of person that says anything the state does is definitionally good. Of course not. (laughs) Now, anything Hmm. the state does might be definitionally legal, but I can call that an unjust law and say we shouldn't honor that law. We should have resisted that law. And that's great. Like, do it. F*** totalitarianism. But – it's the idea that the way to constrain the state is to pretend it's an individual and try to impose the same rules is, is just frankly a category error.
0: Yeah, okay. All right, I, I understand that. Folks, what I'll do is, I think we should wrap up here because it's a good yeah, stopping yeah, point. Sure. Let me, I'll, I do have a respect like to the GDP statistics and stuff of World War II, but I'll just link to that for people who, so again, this is com slash 130 for people who want to see, relying on the work of this economist Bob Higgs is to, well, I think some of that might be misleading. The, the, the quick thing, and I'll give you a chance, is government spending gets counted. So to me, a billion dollars of spending on tanks is not necessarily the same proxy or indicator of economic welfare as a billion dollars people privately spend on nylon stockings and radios. So the fact that the government, and especially because they were monetizing the debt, the fact that the government could print money and spend it and show, oh, total spending went up year by year in the 40s, to me doesn't isn't the same thing as saying ah clearly the economy is producing more real output but
1: Okay, no, I, look, I, I get that point, and I don't actually disagree mm. with it conceptually, but I do think you've got to, what's good for the goose is good for the gander there. If the point is to not use GDP as a proxy for real values, then we have to apply that consistently. There's a bunch of private sector activity that contributes to GDP that I wouldn't say is net socially positive either. I'm, I'm probably inclined to agree with you. I don't think a lot of the output that came mm. through World War II was good output, uh, from my point of view necessarily. I think it was output that they wanted and they got, and my point was just about where the output limits are now, you know, the tanks existed, right? Like they existed, the tanks were created. If you, if your point is that like for, for every bit of output there, there was some other kind of output that was forsaken or some other thing that wasn't represented actually in the statistics. Okay. But I, I'd say that's true of any GDP metric. And and I'm, I'm not going to defend the world war two, you know, GDP output as a good thing. Uh, but my point was just that under any normal metric of GDP, it did fine. And if we are going to start digging under the surface of GDP and saying what is good growth, what is real growth, what is output that actually matters, then I I'm fine with that conversation. I embrace it. But it has to apply equally to private activity as well. If if the nope. knee jerk assumption is if it's private activity, um, you know, I understand the Austrian point of view is individual private activity doesn't have to be efficient, it's just a net output process. But it, i I would argue that maybe that net output process isn't isn't net positive either. But okay. it, anyway.
0: Yeah. Point, yeah. Point so, taken, just yeah, to, to again, I'll I'll put links for people who want to. I'm not merely saying, oh, I personally, you know, am a pacifist and I don't like tanks or so, that. It it was more of a conceptual that government officials spending money, they don't get to keep it. Like they, they don't have the option of spending it on private. That would be embezzlement. So that that's that's the issue that there's something fundamentally different about government spending funds versus people spending quote their own money. In but terms people don't, of people
1: people don't, the corporations. I mean, if I'm a CEO, I'm not spending my own money,
0: right? Like what you're saying,
1: I agree with you as a point of like there's a there's a there's an mm-hmm. agent principle problem in government, but that's also true of every corporation,
0: no? right? And I guess there'd be we uh, the argument would be there'd be better checks on like this, the shareholders' money, and so they'd be much more watching to make sure that the board of directors and you know right. Don't, so don't but that, that's, the dis- that's the that's yeah. the disagreement,
1: right? It's not that one actor is spending someone else's money and the other isn't. They're both spending someone else's money. It's just that you think the protections on shareholder accountability are better than protections on democratic accountability, right? I'm not trying to misrepresent. Uh, you. I'm just trying to get. No, to the No, actual that's, clash. no, that's a good
0: point. I haven't, I haven't had someone challenge me so well before on this issue. So because normally I'm speaking to Austrian crowd. <laughs> uh, yeah, right now with me thinking about it off the top of my head, you're, yeah, I, I think that probably is what what the the, the defensive position I would fall back on. So, yeah, yeah. no,
1: and, and, and look, I'm not, I'm not yeah. going to question that right now. But my point is mm-hmm. just
0: like
1: I don't think it's fair to say you're talking about government spending someone else's money and i'm talking about people spending their own money i mean that's a not an accurate like that's not the accurate place where the tension is that's all
0: no no okay no i i like that that's yeah, good yeah. All right. Okay, well,
1: I'm, I'm happy to okay, come on well, again if if it's ever helpful. I probably you probably got enough footage for me forever now, but uh, you know I, I found this constructive. I hope it was useful. We could turn turns
0: into a documentary at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well. Well. Thank you. No. In all seriousness, joking said so this. This really was. I know. I got frustrated at points there, but that was just because your answers were surprising me and it was good. It was oh, good. I'm sorry I interrupted so, a couple of times. I just get excited. I wasn't trying to. You know. Oh well, no, it's good. All right. So, um, thanks, Rowan, for your uh, for participating in this long thing, and I'm sure the listeners know a lot more about the intricacies of MMT and at least can, can see that you certainly have a coherent worldview and have thought through a lot of this stuff very deeply. So I, yeah, I appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, and, and happy to chat in time. As I said, like, I, you know, I don't imagine we'll come to some meeting in the minds, but uh, the more clarity of where we disagree is always useful. So happy to chat further.
0: Okay, great, thanks. Take it easy. You too.
1: You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.